is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, August 22, 2020. This week, we have two exceptional guests. Marty Coniglio, veteran meteorologist, had a great career at Channel 7. Then on to Colorado's news leader, Channel 9, where he could have had a job for life. But he gave it all up because he felt the need to speak out against Donald Trump. The very first interview that Marty Coniglio gives anybody is little old me, and we talk it out. And it lasts a couple of hours, and I think it's entertaining throughout. Marty Coniglio gave up so much. What is behind that decision? You will find out. Mitch Morrissey and I spoke for a long time in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Mitch Morrissey, the three-term DA in Denver, a Democrat, his grandfather, a Democrat U.S. attorney under Franklin Delano Roosevelt here in Denver. That's where he served as U.S. attorney. Then he ran against Ben Stapleton for mayor of Denver. Did you know about that? Mitch's father, also a Democrat, a state legislator, and a fine lawyer. Mitch and I spend a lot of time talking about the past. Wow, what a talk we had about Jean Benet. Mitch Morrissey is the guy who held up the indictment. Listen to that portion of the interview coming up. We talk about the past in DNA, where Mitch is such an expert. My gosh, the Golden State Killer just got convicted and sentenced this week. 13 different murders, 13 different rapes. He probably did a lot more than that. What brought him down? DNA. Nobody knows more about DNA than Mitch Morrissey. Mitch Morrissey is a lifelong Democrat, but wait till you hear his answer when I ask him, are you going to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump? His answer surprised me. And Mitch is clearly pissed off about the destruction of the government end of downtown Denver. It's not completely ruined, but it's not like it was. All these windows being broken. You have to hear this session of Craig's Lawyer's Lounge with Mitch Morrissey. But first, listen to the reasoning of Marty Coniglio, because he's not just a weatherman. He is smart. He's well-informed, maybe too well-informed, because he cannot stay silent any longer. And he spoke out. He tweeted. He lost his job. And I have his first interview. It starts right now. Oh, what a world, what a day, what a life has been led by Marty Coniglio. Great to have you in studio, Marty. Thanks a lot for doing this interview. Thank you. I I appreciate you calling me up and asking me. Well, you are in the news, and we've always been friendly, although we don't really have time to visit socially. I remember running into you when I was by your shop in November. And there was speculation then you might be leaving Channel 9, but you got a new contract and we all thought, great, we're going to be watching Marty Coniglio for years to come on 9 News. Then you sent out a tweet. Tell everybody what happened. 
Well, what happened is, is I sent out a tweet. What's it been? It's been about a month ago now, July 23rd. I sent out a tweet that we had done a, a, let me set it up. We had done a poll that morning and the poll was about the federal presence in Portland. And the poll essentially said, you know, in a very banal kind of way, do you think there should be federal law enforcement helping out in Portland? And we didn't really go into the context of of the separation of powers. We didn't go into the context of the fact that, you know, you have these truly unidentified people, these unidentified, and I'm air quoting, federal officers who were plucking people off the streets, frisking them, searching them, dragging them into vans, and really with zero civil liberties, zero you know, respect for the rule of law. This was going on in Portland. This was going and on in Portland. the poll you're talking about, was it an NBC poll? No, it was a local news? poll. It was a nine news poll. And, and so we went through the thing, and I, and I just, you know, and so the tweet I did, and, and it was inappropriate to the ethical standards and practices of the company. And I own that. I, you won't hear me at any point here say, oh, my God, they did me wrong or they did something bad to me because they followed their ethical standards and practices. So what happened to me, I accept the consequences of it. So I feel like because of that, I can speak with authority about some things because I'm willing to accept consequences. So we did that poll. I put up a picture of some of the, the brown shirts from the 1920s and 30s, the so-called stormtroopers that were loyal to the Nazi party. And after Hitler kind of bumped off all of the head guys of that group in, what, 1934, he became the de facto head of that group. And I said, this is an example. This is, this is a nationalized police force that existed. And it, and it was a factual tweet. It is a historical fact, and it happened. And so- and the, the language of your tweet, federal police in cities. Now, where have I seen that before? A bunch of brown shirts sitting under a swastika. Exactly. Did you think you were going to lose your job over this? Yes, I did. And it, I, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't my first infraction. Some of the infractions I had in 2018, 2019, I thought were minor and I thought were a bit inflated. But Honestly, in 2019, I figured I was leaving anyway, so I didn't fight them. And so this was like, I don't even think this was strike three. This was probably strike six. Right. But when you posted that, did you talk to your wife? Did you talk to your family and say, hey, I'm going to post something on social media. I think I'm going to lose my job. No, I didn't. And the next day when I did lose my job, and it happened very quickly, that Thursday, Day went on, got a call, take the post down. Because when you work in media, and Craig, you know this because you've worked in media and still do, they own everything about you. So for instance, now my Twitter feed is my own. But when you work for an entity like the parent company Tegna, which owns Nine News, they own your social media. So that, that, that is their social media outlet no matter if it's your name on there, whatever. So they called me and said, well, I'll take that, take that post down. So I did, went through the day. The next day I happened to be off. It was just a, it was a pre-scheduled day off 
And very late in the day, management, two of the uh, senior managers there called me up, said, we have a Zoom call at four, said, we're terminating you. And, and here's the letter outlining why and all solid reasoning from their point. And, and that was that. First of all, I'm a lawyer. I have to tell you, never make an admission like that, although you already have. And you accept the consequences. Marty Coniglio, I did not want to bury the lead. Everybody is talking about your tweet and the consequences. Let's back up first. Let's tell the Marty Coniglio story because the beauty of a podcast is we have time and you are an interesting dude. Hmm. Where did you grow up? Where did you... Marty Coniglio developed the traits that led you to this moment. Well, I am originally from Lincoln, Nebraska, and I went to the University of Nebraska. I'm one of 10 children, a Catholic family of the, the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. What was your birth order in that I, I'm, 10 spot? I'm eighth of eighth. 10. Yeah, I'm the youngest boy. There were five boys, five girls. One of my older brothers passed away a few years ago from colon cancer. So I put my plug into everybody, get your regular colonoscopies, which he did not. After he retired from the army, he went for 20 years without going to the doctor, which was a really silly thing to do, which he admitted. And so I miss him tremendously, especially in times like these, because he happened to have that brother, my late brother Tim, was a, a major in the army. He was an airborne ranger. He served in Germany during the Cold War and then uh, did instructions in armored warfare after that, retired after 20 years. And trust me, he would have a lot to say about the the state of civil liberties and the constitutionality. Tim also had a genius IQ. He was by far and away the smartest person in my family. I've got some awfully darn smart people in my family, uh, one of which, you know, I, I may not be in the top five. So Lincoln, Nebraska, yep. were your parents affiliated with the university? I, that's a college town if ever there was one. You know, they were not. My, uh, my dad was an Omaha boy. He grew up, went to South High School, which if you were of Italian descent, South Omaha is where you lived. And it, South Omaha has always been the turnover spot and the the landing spot in Omaha for immigration. So in the early 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, when folks were migrating up out of the Gulf Coast, which if you were Sicilian, which is what we are, you would immigrate through New Orleans. You didn't go through New York. So Sicilians came up through, through New Orleans, a lot of Sicilians, a lot of Italians in the South. And then they just followed the work with the railroads and made their way northward. And then you settled in South Omaha. If you were to go to South Omaha today, it's mostly Hispanic neighborhood. Because again, it's that turnover of the most recent immigrant population. Dad went to South High. My mom's from Southern Wisconsin, farm girl from Southern Wisconsin. They met the night before Pearl Harbor at the Aragon Ballroom in Chicago, Illinois. They danced together, and Dad had already was in the Army, served four years in the Army, in the Army Air Corps in World War II, fought the Germans in North Africa, and fought the Italians in Italy. Wow. So he fought the fascist Hitler gang in North Africa, and then they made the crossing and moved over into Italy and worked their way up when Mussolini was falling there. So I have a a strong history 
in what fascism is. Are your parents still with us? My father passed away in 2008. My mother is 96 years old and still living in a memory care unit in Lincoln, Nebraska. Well, so it's interesting. Right. Yeah, in light of your tweet, and I, I hope your mom's okay in COVID, but the military aspect of your family, it's there. Your father serving in World War II, your brother a major in the military. Anybody else? Well, my oldest brother was also a lieutenant in the Army. He served in Korea in the late 1960s and early 70s. And then one of my older brothers, so I had three brothers who served. My other brother, Raymond, who happens to live in Colorado as well, also served in the Army. So growing up, public school, parochial school? Parochial school, Catholic schools through grade school, Catholic high school. And then just because of the fact that we had such a large family, and mom and dad said, everybody, everybody goes to college. We all go to college. You figure out how to pay for it, but you can go to college. And you know, Craig, from back then, you could, you know, you could work. It wasn't easy, but you could work and you could pay for college. You know, with the cost of college now, I don't know how somebody could do it. I, I just, it's too expensive now to be able to do that. Right. I mean, when I went to law school, it was so affordable. It's gone up astronomically. University of Nebraska, when the Buffs and the Cornhuskers play, who do you root for? I've become, I'm pretty much agnostic I, I, uh, on that. I stopped really being a fan somewhere in high school. I got all rebellious, you know, and, just, and I just rebel. And that's part of my, clearly, it's a personality trait that I have. There's a rebellion there. So I got to the point where... I was just, there was just too much, you know. Marty Coneglio, a rebellious type. How did it manifest itself? Did you grow your hair long? Did you join a band? Did you run away? Tell us. Uh, I did all of those things except running away. Yeah, my hair. I mean, we all had hair in the 70s, right? You know, when you have hair in Nebraska. Well, you look like you're about 28 years old. What year did you graduate high school? 1979. Okay. You're in the 70s. Yeah, you so, probably did have long hair. How oh, long was it? It was, I had a, a pretty good Italian fro. I really did. And, you know, I kept that for a while. And because of the high humidity in the Midwest, it really, it really poofed out. So it was, it was a good, it was a good look. But, you know, when you're, a, when you're one of the younger children in a large family, you have to learn how to do things subtly. You can't do anything by brute force. I mean, my older, my oldest brother's 13 years older than I am. Right. And so you're not, growing up, you're not going to, you're not going to overpower anyone, you know? And my second oldest brother, Tim, who I, who I had mentioned, was not only, you know, he, he had determined he was going to go into the military very early and went to ROTC through college. In fact, all three of those guys went through ROTC in college. And he was also a, a pretty good practitioner of martial arts in karate and judo. And so he would practice on myself and my, my brother, who's just three years older than I mean, we would be like his practice dummies. So you learn to do things subtly. You learn how to quietly manipulate things to get your way, if you can. Sometimes you're not successful. And you learn how to lie effectively or act, you know, which in some ways you say, well, acting is lying. You're pretending to be somewhere else. 
you 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 learn how to, in my view, learn how to be a pretty darn good liar. That's interesting. I imagine I only had two siblings, an older brother who's passed away. I, I'm sorry for your loss, and there are many times I wish I could speak with my big brother, but I've I have the middle child syndrome. Oh yeah. That that's a different thing. But with all those siblings, ten kids, it's almost like a mini corporation. You have to learn how to work with the team and your spot in the organization. I'm glad you use that word corporation. My mother was an organizational wizard, and her one of her pat sayings was, What have you done for the corporation today? That was wow. that was it. What have you done for the corporation today? Did you do this job? Did you do that job? Did you what have you done? So it's interesting that you use that term because that was one of Lillian's favorites. So we were we were busy going up and I, I could tell you that going through college, it was a blur. You know, I didn't have what I would consider to be a typical college experience because when I wasn't on campus at class, I was at work. What did you do for work? I did several different things. I worked at a used car lot. I was basically the shag man, the famous shag man right. from the Rockies Autos commercials. I was a shag man cleaning up used cars. I did that for a few years. I concurrently, I, I drove a 15-passenger a van for elementary school kids, mornings and afternoons. And at that same school, which was the, the parochial school I went to, I taught physical education to all of the first through fourth graders, and then the boys, fifth through eighth grade. I would do that in the afternoons after my morning college classes. And then I would drive the school van. I also worked at a liquor store for a good three, three and a half years. And that was like 4 p.m. to 1 a.m. We were the only, the only liquor store on the south side of Lincoln, Nebraska, that was open all the way to 1 a.m. We had some interesting experiences there. I can tell you. And I played in a band. I played in a bluegrass band and did that for four years. What was the name of your group? The name of the group was called Cold Spring. And I was playing mandolin mostly in that group. And we would, and again, the hours were favorable because you would work generally Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights would be the nights you would play live at a local bar. You'd play 830 to 1. Cover band or original music oh, or both? Both, but mostly covers, mostly, you know, traditional hits that everybody knew. I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I played Rocky Top, I could just, you know, I'd buy my own good my own island. Top. Yeah, good old Rocky Top. You know, you get to the get to twelve forty five AM and people just screaming, play Rocky Top. It's like, oh God, here we go again. Do you still play? I do still play. And in fact, in the last couple of years, I have done some things differently from a technique. This is just music nerd stuff, just from a technique standpoint. Mm -hmm. I actually had a shoulder injury right about the time my dad passed away. And because of the way I played, I played with my whole arm and, and really terrible technique. But I developed that so I could quickly get the speed that you needed to play bluegrass because bluegrass has very up-tempo music. And so I, I, as a teenager, I never learned how to do it properly. I learned how to do it quickly. And so, you know, in 2008, my, I hurt my shoulder and I was like, wow, I might be done. And then I said, you know what, if I learned to play correctly, you know, from the wrist out, I could do it. And I've been doing that the last couple of years and it's, 
it's coming along really well. I enjoy it. It's uh, to me, playing is, you know, it's kind of hard to, you don't really get into jams anymore. You know, you can't get together and play with a bunch of people. There's a, a big gathering that happens up in Grand Lake every summer that was canceled this year because of coronavirus that I would normally participate in. And so, oh gosh, I consider it uh, meditation. You know, you can sit down, I can sit down with a with a book of of scales and exercises and arpeggios and be be pretty happy. It's so great to speak to a musician. I have a troubadour on my show, Dave Gunders, and this week his song is Light of the Morning in honor of Marty Coniglio, because I know a little about you. When you were a kid in that family of 10 kids, were you an early riser? Do you like getting up early in the morning or do you hate it? And tell us about that experience in your world. I hate it. I hate it. Another famous saying of my mother's was, and I am quoting here, damn kids don't want to go to bed at night, don't want to get up in the morning. I was always a night owl. Always. And uh, that was true for the first 27 years of my television career. I worked nights. I worked days and nights. And and in 2014, when I was asked to do the morning show, I just flat out said, I'm not sure that I can. I said, I'm not sure that I physically can do it, that I mentally can do it. And they said, oh, give it a give it a whirl. And I will tell you that the first six months, I I don't I hate to be over dramatic, but I was borderline seriously depressed. Over that, because over I'm that. I'm a night owl too. I like yeah, to I, I, can't. I like it to be midnight before I go to bed. Yeah, well, I can't do that anymore. I'm not there anymore. For instance, this morning, you know, I'm I'm a month removed from from regularly scheduled work. This morning, I got up at two seventeen, which is actually a little later than than I was getting up to do the morning show. I usually got up just a smidge before two, so I'm working on that. But it, it no, I hated getting up in the mornings, and I I adapted to it, and I understood what a great career move it was, because it really is. It's a high audience part. There are great demographics to that audience. So I became to appreciate what a, what a good gig it was professionally. And, and from that standpoint, I really, really appreciated it and enjoyed it. The other thing that was the best, and I think this is still true with my friends who work at Nine News, they're extraordinary people on the morning show. They're they're wonderful people. My co-anchors, Gary Shapiro and Corey Rose and Natasha Verma, who just came on that not long ago and just is an absolutely delightful and intelligent person that I love. And and of course, I had the opportunity, and what I feel is the best thing that happened to me on that morning show was I got to know Amelia Earhart. Now, Amelia and I had worked at Channel Nine, you know, she was in the helicopter, and I was there, and we'd wave and say, "Oh, hi, how you doing?" But when we were doing, when she finished her round the world flight, and then came back and was running her foundation, and they called her and said, "Hey, come back and do morning traffic," 
And she said, "No, oh, okay." So they they put us together, and we we were you know in a in a very close situation, kind of like you and I are now here in a nice cozy den. I'd rather be with Amelia. I understand that, and that was my reality. You know, I'm I've uh, everybody used to say, "Oh my God, you work with Amelia Earhart and Corey Rose and and Cheryl Preheim and and Toronto Thomas and Natasha Verma." It's like you're in heaven. It's like, well, yeah. Yeah, I am from that standpoint. But Amelia and I have become extremely good friends. She's just, you have no idea what an extraordinary individual she is. I have a little idea because I used to work with her on radio and I got to know her a bit. Not like you know her, but she's not only beautiful, she's super nice. And you bring up Cheryl Preheim, who I got to meet through radio and another extraordinary person. Cheryl Preheim, uh, of course, it's now in Atlanta. Yes. She's one of the primary news anchors in Atlanta. One of the easily top five individuals for talent, expertise, humanity, empathy, just and oh, just overall skill. And here's this mother of four who has who had two sons with with health issues, just banging stuff out left and right and doing amazing things. And and uh, she's uh, one of my all-time favorite people that I've ever worked with. And there are a lot. I mean, there's so many talented people. Right. Now, I did not watch you on the morning that much. We all remember you from the 10 o'clock news, not yeah. just Channel 9, but Channel 7. But let's get back to broadcasting. And the only time I got up really early in the morning is when I had to open the shop at Meadow Hills. But because I loved golf, I could do it. And I'd get there at 4.30 or 5 in the morning, open up the shop. And it was an exciting environment. Do you love broadcasting enough where that sort of overcame your opposition to getting up early? I loved weather enough to do that. The The broadcasting part was was fun because it was an outlet for the puzzle that you got to put together. And I've always, for the 35 years I've been in in broadcasting, my favorite part of the job was and is, who knows if I if I even have a career after this in that in that realm anyway, it's putting the puzzle together. What do the data say? Where's it going to go? How's it going to affect people? What what's going to happen when and where? That was the interesting part and what broadcasting gives you is just that huge voice to be able to tell it to a lot of people. I've been to briefings up at NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research. I've been to briefings that they do in-house with just some marvelous, marvelous minds up there going, okay, here's the weather for the day. And you're just sitting there slack-jawed at the amount of brain power in the room. And it, But it's a briefing and it's knowledge that never leaves that room because it's for their purposes and they did it and that was fine. But to do it via broadcast or via any media, it's it's so much more special because you get to share the fruits of your labor. You're making a product and you're, you're providing right. that product to somebody and the product's information. 
gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Gosh, I have to get Amelia Earhart on my podcast. She is such a nice person and beautiful besides. Same with Cheryl Preheim, who was the producer for the Dan Kaplan Show back in the day when I used to go on to talk about OJ. We're going to take a little break now and listen to my troubadour before we go back to Marty Coniglio. Why? Because... The troubadour, Dave Gunders, has a song that is special, Light of the Morning. And I just talked about getting up early with Marty Coniglio. And here is a slightly different perspective from Dave Gunders. Listen to the words here. And I love talking with the dude. I hope you like it, too. When it's over, we go right back to Marty Coniglio. And I hope you will stay tuned because I had one of the most intriguing sessions of Craig's Lawyer's Lounge with Mitch Morrissey. Mitch Morrissey, the three-term Denver DA, who thought about running again in 2020. Did you know that? Did you know what really happened on Jean Benet? He was a big part of that. Did you know he interacted with Kamala when she was DA in San Francisco and he was DA in Denver during the DNC? And oh, by the way, he's interacted several times with a guy named Joe Biden. You will be surprised when I ask Mitch Morrissey, who is he going to vote for, Donald Trump or Joe Biden? I was surprised. Got a lot of show coming up. Now, enjoy my troubadour, your troubadour, our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Here we are with my troubadour, Dave Kunders. What a beautiful song, Light of the Morning. And we get to introduce everybody to a new character in your life. Dare I say, one of the protagonists, Henry Gunders, your father. Tell everybody about your song, Light of the Morning, and the amazing story that is your father. Some time ago, my father told me a story, well, something that, that he believes helps him through his life. And that is that his mother who died, his natural mother died when he was only one year old. He was born in Germany and this was 1925 and she was swept away by some fever, yellow fever or something like that. Died at 21. Well, my father has a belief, and this is interesting because he's a very Western man. My dad, he's a, he's a corporate guy. and He got the hell out of Germany at what age? 15. How did he do that? In 1938, well... Jewish man named Gunders in Germany. Gunder, that's not a good time to be there. Gunderheimer. 
but he he and my and my grandparents came. Uh, that's another story. But one day my father was was uh, out in the yard and he was very worried about my mother who was sick at the time. He loved my mother very much and he told me that he was in the garden and he was literally he was he was sweating. He was so nervous and he thought that it was a pretty grave illness that she was going through, which she recovered from. But he said he felt a presence come in, in over him and, and, and telling him that my mother was going to be okay. And he attributed that to his natural mother who had been dead for all those years that, and believes that she watches out over him. He told me that story and it kind of percolated in my head for a while and it, it came out in this song, Light of the Morning. I imagine so. And to me, this is another perfect pandemic era song, because even if you get down and again, you have that imagery about a ship going down in this song, but you say a new ship will come along and every day is a recreation and God sends an angel called Daybreak. Am I on the right track here? You are. And, uh, you know, it's in in a reggae fashion, too. I think of Bob Marley, who is you know, I mean, he was very prophetic and very hopeful in his in his in his music. So I I was definitely thinking of Bob Marley. I I, I love to play reggae, and and I think that his uh, his sensibility kind of comes through in this song. It's so beautiful. We have to talk once again about your daughter. This time it's Rachel Gunders. She and you sing such incredible harmony, and then she has this solo, and it's just extraordinary. Yeah, her her lyric is "Hear me say it's going to be all right." So basically, when Rachel takes over the song by herself, she is the angel singing. And it reminds us of your Mick Jagger story when you went to see the Rolling Stones, got tricked by counterfeit tickets, and your angel Rachel said, "I'll take care of it, Dad. It's okay," and bought you tickets with the money she made. What a daughter you have! She's so skilled in so many ways, but. You should not take this for granted. Both your daughters are extraordinary performers. Yes, I don't take my daughters for granted. I love my daughters very much. They're great people, and they're still young, but I can see that they've got a lot of humanity, a lot of depth. Let's return to their grandfather, Henry Gunders. What a man he is, still going strong. Tell everybody about once your father got to America, he's a Western man. What do you mean by that? What did he do for a living, and how is he doing now? Dad's 96. We're, in fact, this morning uh, at four o'clock in the morning, as soon as I leave here, I've got to pack. We're off to uh, Maine for five days and then to see him. I've wanted to see him in these last five or six months. We've had to cancel a con- these trips because of COVID, but we're, we're going now. Anyway, no, Dad had a, had a wonderful career with Pricewaterhouse. He came to this country with nothing. He became a machinist. He volunteered for the Army. He came to Colorado trained in the 10th Mountain Division, went back over to Europe and fought. When he came back, he put himself through school on the GI Bill, got his, his CPA, and, and, then, and then moved forward from there. What a story. And with his mother passing away at age one, and this story that sustained him now manifests in your song. Just before we hear your incredible song, Light of the Morning, you are an early bird. You like to get up and see that daybreak. Tell me what it's like, because unless I have a golf game, I'm not getting up that early. It's like, it's like a pond of water that's still. This is my brain, okay, in the morning. Before all the wind, before the wind froths it around, whips it up, 
it's a it's a still and very and very calm place, and I find that that's the best time to write music. Light of the morning by our troubadour David Gunders. Sent an angel She walks beside me She's here to guide me When I lose my way You may not believe it's true But I would not deceive you I hear her voice Every word she says Hear her when the wind blows, see her when the clouds glow bright. Here in the sunset, I tell you what she brings now, even as she sings now. She's beautiful, you bet. So when the darkness comes, don't give in, don't give in. There's a way to carry on. Sometimes when I'm walking My head's so busy talking My eyes wide open I don't see the sky When all of my worries Go round in a flurry And I get nowhere
the rest of the interview with Marty Coniglio because it gets deep down and personal. I think Marty Coniglio is an extremely bright person who has a range of background from being a jock, a musician, a scientist, a TV star that you don't get in a lot of people who have lived six decades thus far. Marty has more room to go and to grow. And you will hear me discuss with him what I think is going to happen in the future. I think Donald Trump will be repudiated by the American people. And the people like Marty Coniglio, who stepped out to not only tweet his disdain for our president, but who sat down with me in my brand new studio. I hope you love it. I do. I have a great setup where we are socially distanced. And Marty came to my home studio, and I got to know the man. You will, too. We wanted to make a record of where Marty Coniglio stands as of this important time in the year 2020. Marty Coniglio spills his guts, and I think it is sensational. After him comes Mitch Morrissey and Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And that goes for a while as well, because he, too, wanted to make a record of what he was thinking and feeling on August 22, 2020. Enjoy. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer. My father, a Denver lawyer. My grandfather, a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel. It's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal, Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. Puts 303-829-2107. 
303-829-2107. Sandler Training, it could really help you. Thank you, Danny Levin. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Marty Caniglio, you talk about your passion for weather forecasting. That's a matter of science. Is it the science that you love? Yes, it is the science that I love. When I went to the university, I started as a psychology major. In fact, I was a senior in psychology. I was already doing what they call the practicums, where I went to, as one of my 400-level psychology classes, I was working as a volunteer, basically, at the community mental health center, the county community mental health center, which happened to be like four blocks from my house. You know, everything in Lincoln was really close and accessible. And it was at that point, having gone through that semester and seeing the case, the caseload that people had, that the counselors had, seeing the types of cases they had, seeing the issues that they had to deal with, and understanding that, coming to the realization that you weren't going to fix anyone. You weren't going to cure anyone. You were going to just help them limp by. And I realized that I didn't have the emotional reserve to do that. And it was deflating because I was really close to graduation. And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And so I sat back, actually talked to my father a little bit about it. He was a man of few words, but he, he made him count when, when he said them. And he said, you know, what are you interested in? And I said, well, I like, I like weather. I think it's cool. And he goes, do that. So then I, I, I totally switched directions and went to weather, and it took me, yeah, I, got, I added a year and a half to a normal four-year college stint and ground out that meteorology degree in a year and a half, which is a challenge, I can tell you. And I'm glad I did, to be in the natural sciences and to be able to do that and to think rationally. I still have an interest in psychology. It's, it's fascinating to me. I see how it... It governs people's lives. I see how it governs me. I self-analyze myself constantly. Boy, it's it's just interesting. As I analyze people, I think that people either have a passion for hard science or soft science. Soft science being psychology or political science, which I studied. But then there's hard science where my sister, who's so much smarter than me, She became a veterinarian. She loved physics and calculus and chemistry. So you seem to me that you found your passion in hard science. You want two plus two to equal four, and you don't want to debate about, well, what does that really mean? That's correct. Now, in meteorology, there are a lot of unknowns because the atmosphere is huge. You can't model it completely because it's too big. There are assumptions that have to be made. There are, even in the numerical models, there are assumptions that you have to make that aren't strictly accurate, but they're convenient. Or I shouldn't say accurate. They're, they're not strictly precise, mm-hmm. but they're convenient because you, you can't overwhelm the computing power that you have. So there is a level of artistry that that goes into it. So I, I feel like I'm more of a hybrid where I do believe in hard science and and I do believe that the the skill of the individual plays a lot into it. I, I liken meteorology and weather to medicine. 
where you may go to three or four different doctors and get three or four different answers right. on a given condition. And that's not that that the the science of medicine is different. It's the, the educational level, the skill level, the experience, and the insightfulness of the individual doctors plays a big part. Right now, science is so impactful on all of us. We have the wildfires burning. We have a record heat wave in August. We have COVID amongst us. What does your scientific mind make of these times? Where are we at? Well, we are. Earth is a is a big, complicated system. The Earth atmosphere system is a big, complicated system, and it it's inconvenient at times, and it it goes back a long way. And there are human impacts on the Earth climate system, and especially when you know when you think about land use and river use and and using locks and dams. I mean, for instance, the Mississippi River stopped being a natural river 100 years ago because of what we have done to it to, to re-engineer it and change how it, it functions. And similar to what we've done to the high plains, when you take from the Front Range of Colorado all through the Midwest, which was once just un, unbroken grassland, the Great American Desert, as it was called, and now it's, it's all under the plow. And so you've changed reflectivity, you've changed the way the land is used, you've changed how it absorbs radiation, how it emits radiation. We've changed the composition of the atmosphere, of course. That's one of the big, the big talking points of the last 20 years has been the climate change debate, which I, I, I'm, I think it's unfortunate that the verbiage has settled on climate change because climate changes. And so that I think that's unfortunate because you say, well, we're going to fight climate change. It's like, well, I mean, not really. I mean, you can you can fight some human effects on the climate, but you're not going to change the climate. You're not going to stop the climate from changing. You're not going to stop the next ice age. We didn't stop the last ice age. You know, when you think about 40,000 years ago, Chicago, where Chicago is, was under 10,000 feet of ice. That's nuts. So the Earth is a, a very complicated place, and we, we play a role in it in, in, a, in a huge way. And I think it's important for people to think about things rationally. And I think that's ultimately what got me in trouble and bounced from my TV job. Explain that. Well, as, as I said, I posted a historically accurate fact. It was a historic, that's all it was. But I, I, as a, I was talking to another lawyer, as you know, I do some forensic meteorology. Yes. I do work for, I do work for, you know, property damage and commercial buildings and, and personal injury and all that sort of thing, determining weather conditions. And uh, one of the lawyers with whom I work was saying, yeah, that was, he goes, boy, you, you said Nazi. You know, you, 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 you showed Nazis. And you, boy, when you show Nazis, that's, you know, that's a taboo. You can't, you can't compare anybody to a Nazi. You can't reference Nazis. And, and right, there's that rule that anybody who mentions Hitler loses the argument because they've gone too far. They've gone too far. And, and the fact is, is that I said this existed. And people said, well, you're comparing 
federal agents, which, by the way, we don't really know they're federal agents, by the way. We don't really know who they are, but you're comparing them to Nazis. And, and, and I could say, yes, I, I am comparing them to Nazis, but that doesn't mean I'm saying they are Nazis. For instance, you can, you know, we both have glasses of water here. And I say, I have a glass of water and you have a glass of water. They're both glasses of water here. Well, mine has less water in it than yours. So they're not the same, but we can compare them. So by saying they're both glasses of water doesn't say they're the same thing. You know, a 1972 Pinto was a car. Right. And a 2020 McLaren is a car. Well, this is what I took from your tweet, that you are not insulting the military personnel or whatever branch they came from. You were talking about the leadership, the guy who deployed them. Okay. I took it as a comparison of Donald Trump and his authoritarian totalitarian tendencies to Adolf Hitler. Is that what you were doing? That is what I'm doing. I think that we're in a dangerous time. And honestly, Craig, when I got up this morning, and I'm uh, so very happy to have this opportunity to speak with you, you know, a, a month out, you, you know, my 15 minutes of fame on this issue, I think are long since gone. Though, give you an idea. So I, I have this, you know, Twitter storm at the end of, you know, the end of July. The week after the, like four days after I'm fired, demon sperm is trending on Twitter. Demon sperm. The president is, is promoting the, the medical ideas of a doctor who says that people get sick from, from having sex with demons in their sleep. That's a wild dream. How do you, how do you beat that? So, so I'm right. already, and so now I was talking about the authoritarian moves which, by the way, as we have now learned from the Government Accountability Office, that Cuccinelli and Wolf are both heading the DHS illegally. They have ascended to that position in an inappropriate way and actually don't have legal authority to run those departments. But that, that's another thing. Yes, it's that authoritarian move. And again, I've been eclipsed because now the president just— blatantly is trying to destroy the post office. And he just says out loud, I want to destroy the post office because you can't have mail-in voting then because he sees higher voter turnout as a higher likelihood of him losing. So he will use the levers of power. He installs DeJoy, a huge donor and a ridiculous partisan to run the post office as postmaster general. He goes in, takes out a bunch of sorting machines. My postal carrier, who I've been friends with for years, I've chatted with her for years, has been telling me this for weeks. She said, the changes in our policies, they are telling us, leave this mail here. Don't, don't deliver it all. Just leave it. Let it wait. So we're going to let prescription medications sit. We're going to let payment checks sit. We're going to let all kinds of things sit for the express purpose of an individual wanting to suppress voters. That is the most undemocratic, unpatriotic, un-American thing that I can think of. And it's a crime. The reason why people don't go into your mailboxes on the house, on the block where you live, is because people recognize that's a federal felony. You don't mess with the mail. Of course, if you have the pardon power, maybe you do it. But 
It is outrageous what is going on. And we are into the heart of it, Marty Coniglio, because we are making a show for August 22, 2020. And it's going to be a historical record. And I wanted to be on the record that I oppose this president of the United States. And I had a pretty spectacular departure from my workplace in the media, as did you. And I don't think people forget, Marty Coniglio, what happened to you. And you might think they've moved on to demon sperm, but a lot of people admire you and your forthrightness. And maybe it gives them some courage. Hey, I'm going to speak out because these are not normal times. We are on the precipice of an election that will determine not just the fate of our country, but probably of our family, perhaps the world. This is a big deal. And that's why we are here now, right? Talking about this, your voice is so important. How critical, in your view, are the next few months? It is It is the most important election, not only of our lifetime, and we're, we've got a pretty long lifetime, both of us. It is the most important election, I would say, since 1860 in this country. It is, without question, the most important, because what we are currently fighting for, and I got a lot of pushback on my social media tweet, the, the one that was offensive. I got a lot of pushback, and, and people would say, oh, you liberal, and oh, you hate conservatism, and oh, if you hate America, leave. And, and that's wrong-headed thinking. And I understand that the, the true believers in what I can only describe as the Trump cult the true believers, I understand that I'm not going to sway them. I Trust me, I have friends in the Midwest, people that I've known for decades, people that I, 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 I still love them. I can't have a rational conversation with them on this subject. I, I will present data. I will present facts. I'll present information, and they're unable to process it. They, they go, oh, well, wh whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. It is so important because what we, we have is we have a president who has realized that you can, you can subvert and you can use the levers of powers that you have to maintain your power and to maintain your position. And that is fundamentally undemocratic and it's fundamentally un-American. So my, my view is, is that if you're a supporter of this totalitarian, just dismantling of institutions and safeguards of democracy that this president has undertaken, I would say, if you support him, you are fundamentally un-American, you are fundamentally undemocratic, and you are fundamentally destroying this experiment, this noble experiment that could be a more perfect union. We all, we all want to aspire to the ideal of America. We're not there yet. We can see that in, in, in race relations and systemic racism. It's, it's just, it's a reality. And, and we've seen it in our lifetime where when I was born, I was born in 1960. When I was born in 1960, it could be the law of a state to ban interracial marriage. It was not until the Supreme Court decision of 1967 Loving v. Virginia. Loving v. Virginia. Exactly. Loving. Actually, what a great name for, for a couple. Loving v. Virginia. That, that 
the Supreme Court said, you know what? You can't ban interracial marriage. That's in our lifetime. So we, we've come a long way. We have a lot farther to go. And I don't want to go backwards. And, and we are just talking about what we're doing here. And we haven't even talked about foreign influence. And if I could just back up for a minute, and I, I, I don't want to devolve into this, the president's a terrible person, and oh, he's a racist. I, I, I don't want to get into necessarily that emotional part of it. It's all true, but I don't necessarily want to get into it. Let's just take the basic building blocks of, of being president. So you're, uh, Craig Silverman, you're applying for the job of president of the United States. Good morning, Mr. Silverman. Nice to have you here. We're going to have you fill out your application to, to apply for this job of president of the United States. Now, question one on this application is, will you place the wants, needs, and security of the people of the United States of America above your own? That's, that's question number one. And you're going to say, well, yes. Question number two would be, can you, will you disclose all necessary documents so that we can verify that you will, in fact, do that? And if you say yes, we can continue on. Now, with Donald Trump, we've never seen his taxes. Correct. We've never seen his taxes. So we don't know. And he has not divested from his businesses, which are international businesses. We don't know how they're funded. We don't know if they make a profit. We don't know where the money comes from. We don't know where the money goes. We don't know who may have leverage over him. We don't know any policy or, or proposal that comes out of this administration. We don't know if it's for his benefit or the benefit of his friends or for the benefit of the United States of America. We don't know that. And as far as I was concerned, in 2016, when he said, no, you can't see my tax returns, that to me is just like, thank you for coming in. We're going to go a different way, and we're going to we'll hire someone else to be president. That in itself, from a rational, just applying for a job view, you have disqualified yourself for the job. You're not a serious candidate. Well, let me push back a little bit because there is no law that requires disclosure of taxes. And he came up with the excuse it's under audit. And some people bought it at the time. Some people didn't. And everybody has their breaking point. But let's find out about your politics. Before Donald Trump was ever on the scene, would you describe yourself as liberal, conservative? Did you affiliate with either party? The answer is yes to all. I have been a registered Republican. I have been a registered Democrat. And for the last several years, I've been an unaffiliated voter. And I see pluses and minuses to many different philosophies. I am what I would call a, I am a fiscal conservative, but I am a social liberal. So I believe in equal access under the law and equal justice under the law. So banning interracial marriage doesn't fly with me. Banning gay and lesbian marriage doesn't fly with me. I, I feel like when people are adults, they're, they're, that's what they want to do. Live and, that's, and that's let live. Live and let live. So I'm, I, I, that's where I am on, on those issues. But when it comes to fiscal issues, 
I think that there there could be a lot of tightening. I don't believe in the in the maxim of you run a government as a business. Government fundamentally is not a business. It is a service. It's not there to make a profit. It's there to provide services, but you have to do it in a reasonable way and a fiscally responsible way. So I have been all over the place. If you say, have you voted for Democrats? Yes. Have you voted for Republicans? Yes. I have done all those things. I would say that the, for instance, in the 2016 election, the best candidate in the field, Governor John Kasich from Ohio, the Republican from Ohio, a competent, compassionate, uh, conservative fella who who is just a realist and he's and he's a rational guy. Now he's on the outs now because he's not a member of the cult, which is unfortunate because it's it's this departure from rationality, I think, that has really hurt the Republican Party. Right. And to the extent you were a Republican before, it's good you got out of it because Trump has branded any Republican who does not support him as human scum. Can you believe that he labeled people like Mitt Romney human scum? Isn't that something that tells you everything you need to know? Who would want to be part of a a political party where if you didn't agree with the boss, then you are human scum. Right. That's not, that is not the way we do business. It's not the way we should be doing business. And it's not the way we should be referring to one another. And to go back further, when we talk about what, what I did with my tweet and, and, and mentioning the word Nazi, and people were so incensed that I would, would even mention that in relation to, to federal agents, you know, sacred federal agents, how many dozens of times has the president of the United States referred to people who are in the intelligence community, people who are in the Justice Department, people who are in the FBI as crooked, corrupt, and dirty cops? He has said it explicitly. And there's I think more than Black Lives Matter, the guy is labeled various law enforcement officers, corrupt, dirty cops, exactly what you are saying. Right, right. So it's a cult. I don't know how you break that cult. I I, I think you just have to you have to have good people rise up and say this is this is just not who we are. And it and it wouldn't be the thing that I try to stress to people who who have this, you know, I'm a Republican, I've always been a Republican, I could never vote for a Democrat, which I just think is weird. I mean, I think you vote for who's ever best. Right. I, 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 yeah, but, you know, some people, and I think there are some Democrats that are the same way. It's like, oh my God, I could never vote for a Republican, which I, I don't think is an appropriate way to view things be, because there are people who are talented, there are people who are caring that, you know, happen to belong to one party or another. However, in in this coming election, what we have witnessed is we've witnessed the, the Republican Party has just collapsed under the weight of, for whatever reason, under the weight of Donald Trump, it has just collapsed. Yesterday, the Senate Intelligence Committee final report comes out and the Russian coordination with the Trump campaign was worse than what we thought. It was worse than what they thought. The, the, the committee, headed by Senator Rubio, concluded that the president lied in his 
in his responses to the Mueller probe. He did, in fact, talk to Roger Stone about WikiLeaks. The Trump campaign knew about WikiLeaks. They knew where the information had come from. They they knew that it it was hacked DNC material. They created messaging around promoting new data dumps that were going to come out. The president did it frequently during, you know, when he was then a candidate, he did it frequently. There was clear coordination. There was clear coordination between Paul Manafort and Kalimnik, who is a known Russian intelligence agent. And it's, it's and the number of contacts, between, and Rubio, after all this comes out, he says, well, see, there's, there's really nothing there. And it's like, it's 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 we are living Orwell's 1984. Black is white, up is down, four is five, double speak is the is the rule of the day, and that's where we are. And a society cannot stand when you don't agree on basic facts. And Craig, the 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 where you see this playing out is COVID 19, the inability of this administration to one, recognize the scope of the problem, two, admit the scope of the problem, three, take any action on the scope of the problem. Back in, back was it, February, March, the president was breaking, oh, we have 15 cases. Soon it's going to be zero. What's five and a half million now, and we have over 170,000 people dead. You can't spin a pandemic. And, And he's tried to spin it and it doesn't work. Right. And the only Republican who will speak out is Mitt Romney. We have four or five percent of the world's population. We have 25 percent of the cases. We're leading the world when it comes to death. What a miserable record for the most advanced country on earth. How Republicans cannot face up to this reality. I don't know Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz. It's or Lindsey Graham. Three guys belittled by Trump who now bow and scrape in front of him. I do know Cory Gardner, and I am so disappointed in him. I don't know if you've been countered, Senator Gardner, and what your thoughts are, but I cannot believe the way he is now a wholly captured subsidiary of Donald Trump. I I have just met the senator very casually on a couple of occasions, and it is it's a profound disappointment to see that he is completely capitulated to this, and so many people have. And uh, as Lindsey Graham tweeted this in 2016, he said, if we nominate Donald Trump, it will destroy us and we will deserve it. You can look it up in Lindsey Graham's Twitter feed. And he's right. Well, maybe you have maybe you have the background to figure this out better than I do, because your family is from Sicily. I've read the books. I've seen the movies. This seems like a mob boss to me, Donald Trump. I don't think he's the capo de capo, though. I think that's Vlad Putin. Oh, yeah. But he is running things like a mobster. Am I on to something? I think he is. But this is when we start getting into the more subjective part of it, where people say, oh, you're speculating. You know, it's ridiculous. But think of the number of times we have had our president, the current president, speak with Vladimir Putin, with no other U.S. member of the administration or Congress present, no U.S. interpreter present, no notes on the conversations. We have no idea what they're talking about. And, and, and it goes back to, 
it, it also goes back to the the myth, the myth of Donald Trump. And the, the, the myth of Donald Trump is that he is a business genius, which he's not. He's a business failure. He's a, he's a business failure who went bankrupt in the casino business, which how do you do that? But he did it. And from 1995 on, there isn't a bank in the United States that will do business with the man because they know they're not going to get their money back. There's only one bank in the world that keeps doing business with them, and that's Deutsche Bank. And Deutsche Bank has paid out, what, over $2 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars in fines for breaking international banking laws and for money laundering. And the president, of course, is suing and went all the way to the Supreme Court to keep anyone from seeing his banking records and his tax records from his, from his accounting firm and Deutsche Bank. And, and you say, oh, well, that, that's not a smoking gun. Well, they closed the Trump Foundation because they were committing fraud and taking money given to the charity and pumping it into the Trump business and using it for personal purposes. That's fraud. That's flat out fraud. And right after the election in 2016, Trump University, remember that fine institution, settled a lawsuit for $25 million for fraud. Now, Craig, you're a lawyer. If you're defending someone in a fraud lawsuit, is $25 million nuisance money or are you admitting some wrongdoing? That's some real cash right there. I mean, the guy's history of fraud is remarkable and your knowledge of Donald Trump and the details is enormous. What books have you read? What would you recommend people read? Well, I think I just started the Mary Trump book. I think that is key in understanding his state of mind. I just finished it. And she needs another chapter on the fact that his younger brother, who he called his best friend, just passed away this past weekend. Mm -hmm. He saw him once, then he went golfing. And then the next day he tweeted how Fox News is too liberal for him. My gosh, both of us have lost a brother. In my tradition, we don't even do anything for a week. A normal person would take a few days off. This guy is now barnstorming the country. There's a screw loose, and I've read the Mary Trump book. You are going to find out how that screw came loose. Right, and, and I, I'm, I'm relatively certain, given that Mary Trump is a clinical psychologist with a PhD in clinical psychology, she's not making this up. She's not, it's, this isn't just some disaffected, disgruntled family member. This is a knowledgeable, intelligent person who's, who's writing a, a chronicle of what happened. And I would say this, when you talk about the, the, the president's well-documented penchant for lying, lying, lying is actually his, his, his go-to is lying. And you put it out there and you say it. And for instance, the other day when he said, look at New Zealand, New Zealand, they're doing so badly. New Zealand had nine, nine new coronavirus cases in a day. And what, what are we, 4,000 a day, 5,000 a day? And so see how badly they're doing? And it's just this insanity. I would submit to you that if, if, that if Donald Trump were to take a polygraph, he would pass. I'm convinced that he doesn't know the difference, that whatever is going on in his head, he believes wholeheartedly, he believes that to be the truth. I don't think he can recognize truth from fiction.
He's a sociopath. Mary Trump makes the point that his father, Fred, was a sociopath, and that was her grandfather, Mary Trump, the daughter of Donald Trump's oldest brother, Freddie. And when Freddie died at age 42, who was put in charge of taking care of Mary? Donald Trump. What did he do? Cheated her. It's unbelievable. If you're going to rip off your own niece, who won't you rip off? Here are the books that I've read that have heavily influenced me. Commander in Cheat, Fire and Fury, Fear, American Oligarchs by Andrea Bernstein. I really recommend that because it undresses the Kushner family as well. Proof of Conspiracy by Seth Abramson. And Mary Trump knows a lot about her uncle Donald, but the guy who knows more, and I read the foreword to his book, Michael Cohen, Oh boy, his lawyer fixer, that could be one hell of a book, don't you think? I do. However, think about this, Craig. All of this has come out. Uh, John Bolton has written a book. John I'm, Bolton. I'm, I'm no fan of John Bolton. Me I, 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 I've, I, I'm not. I think that he's, he was irresponsible. I think that he abdicated his patriotic duty. During, he sure did. During the impeachment trial. You know, he has come out and said, guy's not fit for office. John Kelly, former chief of staff, came out and said, guy's not fit for office. We all, we've all heard what Rex Tillerson called him. An effing moron. An effing moron. And what's astonishing, it doesn't make any difference. With the true believers, it doesn't make any difference. And what I don't understand, and this is, I apologize, this is, just, this is a personal dig, but I'm going to take a personal dig. Donald Trump is not Brad Pitt. He's not Denzel Washington. He's not Warren Beatty. He is, he's not a charming person. I don't understand the charisma. I, I, I don't understand the attraction. There are some people where you could say, well, I, understand. Yeah, I could see where you could be mesmerized by this person, or I could see where you could be full. And I, I don't get it. And he's such a transparent liar. He's like a, a, a third grade boy lying. You can watch, the, you can see the wheels turning and you can see the lie and it's obvious and it's ridiculous and it doesn't hold together and it doesn't hold up to any scrutiny. And in many ways, I fault the media, broadcast journalism in particular for especially early on, utterly failing at the follow-up question. Never having a follow-up question with a fact. When he would purport something, they would never say, no, that's not true. Actually, this is true. Now, let's move on and keep going here. No one would ever slap him down with a fact. They let him get away with it. And once you get that out there, you know, once you get ahead of the story— in America, you're you're winning because people aren't going to dig any any deeper than that. When the Mueller report came out, the Attorney General Bill Barr came out before it was released, did his little four page summary, which was a gross mischaracterization of what was in the report. But he got the first word, and he got to frame the debate, and nobody, not nobody, but very few people went further than that. It's all about appearances. It occurs to me that he made his name and his fame on NBC, which Channel 9 is affiliated with. You probably did broadcasts around The Apprentice, Celebrity Apprentice. People watched that show, and he was a regular on MSNBC 
and favorably covered for a while by Morning Joe and Mika Brzezinski. Now they are the opposite. So those guys did eventually start to ask hard questions. But your point is it was too late? Yes, it was much too late. Early in, well, in 2015 and 2016, no one asked difficult questions. And and to a certain degree, I think that was, he's entertaining. Mm -hmm. And he he will even say this, it's good for ratings. And isn't it odd to you that, that the president of the United States is tweeting about what TV shows ratings are? That he has time for that? Like, I mean, I don't, you know, right now I don't have a regular job. I don't have time to do that. I've got stuff to do. He's the president of the United States and he's tweeting about what's on Fox on a Saturday afternoon and how it's not. He doesn't like it. I hear he calls segment producers and he tells them, hey, get that guest off your show. We don't like it. Not at all. You are courageous to come out with your opinion. But I think one of the things that probably drove you to it is you are a scientist, and this COVID crisis, it's existential, and he's botching it unbelievably. Yes. Is that what drove you? It was is a big part of it. When we started with that, the, the, the silliness of, oh, we have good numbers. Oh, I like our numbers where we are. And then you have Lawrence Kudlow who gets out there and says, oh, it's not airtight, but it's pretty close to airtight. Right. And we keep... And we keep talking to these people like they're serious people, and they're not serious people. It was it was that with COVID, with the coronavirus, the approach was the same as the approach with anything. Call it a hoax, call it fake news, call it something. And with most of these things that aren't in your face, that don't affect your daily life, most Americans just kind of let it slide because you've got too many other things to do. When it comes to a a, a highly infectious, deadly disease, you can't do that. And what I saw was this systematic denial of of something that existed to the detriment of now, well, to the death of more than 170,000 people. And they'll go, oh, well. And so now the argument was, well, you know, Fauci said it'd be 2 million. So we're doing great. And it's all these crazy moving the goalposts kind of things, as opposed to let's wear masks, let's let's lock it down and wear masks for two months. We'll get it isolated. We'll get decent testing, which we still don't have. We still don't have decent rapid testing to so we can contact trace and test and know where these know where outbreaks are and know where we can contain them. And this and the false narrative of open the economy versus handling coronavirus is insane. If you don't handle coronavirus, the economy is going to tank. We had the worst economy in the history of GDP numbers in the second quarter. And he still, I think, has a lead over Vice President Biden on handling the economy. And it's it's just like what Again, it's it's the insanity of it, and there have been, and this is tragic, and I my heart goes out to the family of Herman Cain, for instance. Right, you have people, and and obviously Mr. Cain was a very high profile, very successful individual who was a Trump follower and supporter, I should say, and you have many people who've done the same thing. Oh, I don't believe it. Oh, it's a hoax. Oh, and and they have they will follow him to their death. And that kind of fanaticism 
has no place in American politics because what people forget is that if you grant this president this kind of power and autonomy, you've given every president that kind of power and autonomy. And I think what people have missed, especially people who identify as, as Republicans right now, is that it's not okay because your guy is winning. You know, if if you're if if you deflate your footballs at the Super Bowl to help you win, it's not okay because your team did it. It's bad. If you're if you're not gonna play by the rules of democracy, if you're not gonna adhere to the Constitution, if you're not gonna respect the institutions of the country, if you're not going to safeguard the the democracy by fully exercising the balance of power between the legislative, judicial, and, and executive branches of government, which, which in the Senate of the United States, there has been complete abdication of their responsibility in that matrix of the balance of power, then it's no longer a democracy and you don't love you don't love America and you don't love this experiment. And the fact of the matter is Vladimir Putin is gleeful. He hates America. He hates democracy. And I've seen bumper stickers and flags and, and T-shirts and signs that say, I'd rather be Russian than a liberal. That's insanity. You'd rather be the, the, the biggest adversary and the Cold War foe that we had. You'd rather be that than somebody who maybe thinks we should have universal health care. That that's your vision of being an American? Vlad Putin, who has a kleptocracy, a former oh. KGB agent who has said that the worst catastrophe of his life was the devolution of the Soviet Union. He thinks that they should have won the Cold War and he's still fighting it. And through Trump, they may be winning. He's winning. Everybody has their breaking point, And I've had several. I think there are breaking points. And then I'm going to run away from this guy. And I think that's what you did at Channel 9. I want to make a statement, is what you said. I want no part of Donald Trump, and we'll get to the media in a bit. But how anybody could have watched first Charlottesville, and then Helsinki, and then the Ukrainian shakedown, and this COVID disaster, I could put in 20 more. But if those aren't breaking points for people... Maybe it's because the whole economy is not flattened. The stock market is setting record highs. And I bet you know people, Marty Coniglio, who say, I'm doing well. My stock portfolio is doing great. Let's not rock the boat. That's why I support Trump. What do you say to them? I don't know what to say to them. And I do know people, frankly, that are of that state of mind. And again, you... You have to ask yourself at the end of the day, is it about me or is it, am, I, am I truly patriotic? Am I truly an American or am I, just, am I just grabbing for all the money I can get? And I love the tax cuts, which, by the way, added $2.6 trillion to the federal debt. Right. And which the Senate Majority Leader said would be revenue neutral. We'd cover it with all the growth. Didn't work. And the first quarter GDP was already negative, and that was before COVID because the sugar high was over. And, and, and so that whole Trump's great at the economy thing, he's as good at the economy as he was a business, which is terrible. It, it, it's, it's all 
tinsel, glitter, and Christmas lights, and there's nothing under it. Let's talk about Charlottesville and race, which has exploded with the murder of George Floyd. First of all, Charlottesville, that shocked me to see that scene in America. Of course, I'm a Jewish guy, and when people are chanting, Jews will not replace us, and carrying tiki torches to Robert E. Lee's statue they want to save, I just could not believe it. What about you, Marty Coniglio? It was part of a larger conversation uh, that I think we're having now. And one of the benefits of Donald Trump is that he's so incompetent at virtually everything that the things that he loves, he tends to destroy my loves. He doesn't really love anything. The things that he uses, he tends to destroy. For instance, uh, I have always, for my entire life, uh, after taking like two history classes, I have abhorred the Confederate battle flag, people displaying the Confederate battle flag and saying, oh, it's my heritage. It's like, these are armed insurrectionists, terrorists, human traffickers, many of whom violated an oath that they took to the Constitution of the United States right. to take up arms against the United States. They're terrorists. In my view, they're ISIS, they're Al-Qaeda, same thing. We are now seeing, since George Floyd and, and just with the incompetence of the president in handling anything, the Confederate battle flag, that uh, flag of Northern Virginia that everybody, you know, the Dixiecrats started flying as a, as a symbol of white supremacy in the 1940s, is really gone out of favor. And when NASCAR banned it, I was impressed because the, the Confederate battle flag was all over NASCAR events. And they were going right at the heart of their demographic and of some of their strongest supporters. And they said, you know what? This is, you know, we thought about this. This is wrong. And we're going we're gonna to do something about it. So I'm very, very happy to see that. And Charlottesville goes to the larger point of these all these monuments you know these monuments to to uh to confederate generals and monuments to confederate figures that that goes on and on and, and a lot of these you know weren't put up until the late 1800s early 1900s and it was it was an intimidation tactic definitely it's all it, it's all it was and now we're talking about those and now places are starting to take those down which never should have been there in the first place so Charlottesville was abhorrent. But when you think about it, because the president is so incompetent in handling these things, he goes, oh, there are fine people on both sides. He inflamed the conversation. He, his instincts, as they always are, were completely wrong. And now we are taking down Confederate monuments all over, all over the country. And the, the, Robert E. Lee's battle flag for the Army of Northern Virginia is certainly no longer in favor anymore. And people understand that it is, in fact, the, the, a symbol of a terrorist organization and, and has no place being flown in this country. It's wrong. Are you shocked at how many people in America appear to be racist and go along with that stuff? 
I mean, the saddest part about Donald Trump to me are friends, not too many in my family anymore, who support the guy despite all this evidence. Now, who am I to talk? Because I voted for Donald Trump. I thought Hillary Clinton was corrupt, but I recognized the error of my ways. So I'm not really judging people, but Charlottesville was a big breaking point for me. Helsinki. And then I went all in on impeachment because being the trial lawyer that I am, I read Bill Taylor's opening testimony. It was roadmap. I thought, wow, the case is there. They have the witnesses. Slam Slam dunk. Yes. Yes. And to hear Corey Gardner's of the world say, I don't see it or we don't need to hear from John Bolton. I thought, what kind of Kafkaesque world are we living in? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you when it when it came to and then John Bolton's complaint was like, oh, the the Democrats just it was too narrowly crafted impeachment malpractice. Yeah, impeachment malpractice, and I don't like the way they did it. And it's like what they did, I think was was wise. They picked an event, right? Right. And one action that was clearly. An impeachable event. He took American money and leveraged it to try to cheat on an election to get information. Uh, Joe Biden, right, he's messing with the election. The same thing he does everything for, as John Bolton eventually revealed. I I just could not believe that lawyers could not see the case. To me, attorneys have a special responsibility in this constitutional crisis, and a lot of them have fallen short. Let's get to the media, because you've been a big part of the media for many decades. Mm -hmm. Is the media doing their job, or is the media falling short? The media is in a very difficult position, which is why I am where I am, not working in the media right now, because they, especially on the local level, so let's separate out kind of like national cable news and local news, and let's talk about local news for a second. And local news is in a difficult spot because the business model is challenging. You know, commercial television where you you have commercials and the commercials pay for the programming and pay for the people to work there and 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 everything. And in a to a large degree, yes, you are serving your community, but your real customer is the advertisers. So you have to Oh, what do I want to say? Insult as few people as you can. You want to inflame as few people as you can. So you want to be as milk toast as you can be. You don't want to be, you want to be white bread. You want to be wonder bread. Just kind of, you know, here's, here's sort of the news. And oh, look at this cute grandma who's 103 years old. She got her first tattoo and stuff like that. And, and, Sometimes you fill the news with more significant stories and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you lend context and sometimes you don't. And I have friends and extended family members that goes, oh, the media is just manipulative. They're manipulative. And and what I would say to that is that, especially in the local level, they're not that well organized. Trust me, they are not that well organized, but they're manipulating the news. They're doing their best with very small staffs, in many cases, very small, inexperienced staff who are trying to to put newscasts together in challenging environments on tight deadlines. And so 
it's it's thin. It's a very thin gruel as far as I'm concerned on the local level, and it's not done in a in a very complete way. On a national level, the sad fact is that those entities that are I feel are 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 fairly good, you know most of the major broadcast networks are do very well and in so far as again they have the same pressures that the local guys do but they've lost the battle and the battle is the the belief that you are credible and they've lost the credibility battle because of decades of talk radio and decades of Fox News Fox News ironically is the only entity that manufactures news. And I it's more of a propaganda network. No, it, it is a propaganda network. It's not a news network. And so you have people who have a set of beliefs and a set of values, and they want those to be reinforced and they go to Fox News, and it's just such a comfortable, lovely place to be. It's like eating McDonald's French fries all day. I mean, they just taste great, and you could just eat one after the other, and you're just getting this, and you just get all these great endorphins in your brain, and and the MSG in there makes you just want to eat even more, and you just love it. And so what they, and, and again, I have intelligent people that I know who go, oh, the media is biased. They just label Trump with these things. And you can lay out several of the things that you just mentioned with Helsinki and with the the Ukrainian shakedown, which was a flat out mob shakedown using American taxpayers' money and threatening the national security of the United States for your own personal benefit. And to cheat to win an election. And to cheat to win an election. And, and they're like, what? And it doesn't register because- you go to Fox and it's like, oh, it's a hoax. And oh, they're just out to get the president. Oh, they'll do anything to get the president. And what I would say to that is stop doing crime and people will leave you alone. Stop doing outlandish things and the media will stop reporting on it and and therefore stop saying bad things about you. Because when people just report on what he does and says and how he behaves— it comes across badly because it's bad. Right. And the media, local, national, they were in a tough spot because right out of the gates, Donald Trump starts labeling the media the enemy of the people. What a Stalin, phrase. Stalin's phrase. That's Stalin's right. phrase. And so how do you report on that objectively? And then you have fellow media members, Fox News and OAN. I oh never watched gosh. it, but- yeah these Trump acolyte networks who say, yeah, they are the enemy of the people and they turn. So Trump, without a doubt, was propped up by three major groups, Fox News and Itzilk, Talk Radio, which I'm pretty familiar with, and then the Drudge Report. Now, Drudge has turned a little bit. I think your controversy hit Drudge a bit. Mine did as well. Matt Drudge, if he falls off the wagon, that could ruin the stool, the three-legged stool that props up Donald Trump. Talk radio is a wholly owned subsidiary right now of Donald Trump. Hopefully there will be a shakeout after the election. But Fox News, 
Rupert Murdoch's about 90 years old. I'm not sure how much long he can keep this going. And somebody explained it to me. Well, John LeBoutlier, a former Republican congressman who worked at Fox News for a while, said, look, these guys, Rupert Murdoch, they've never had access to a president like this. And clearly he does. But I think these things hopefully will come to a sudden halt on November 3 and eventually when we get Trump out of office. But that's not going to be so easy, do you think? No, I don't. He is not somebody, he is already, you know, he sowed the seeds of all this voter fraud, this fictitious vote. And again, the way we cover voter fraud, well, the president says there could be a lot of fictitious ballots out there and a lot of voter fraud, rather than doing the story. There's no voter fraud. There's no evidence of voter fraud anywhere. This is a, this is a baseless claim that the president continues to make. You don't frame it in the way I just said it. And the reason you don't frame it that way is because the loudest voices are going to come at you and say, oh, you're against the president. So, so news organizations are afraid to write things that way. And to kind of, well, you know, we don't want to make people too mad. And that's what happens. He's not going to go quietly. In 2016, you'll recall, it's rigged, totally rigged election. Why did he say that? Because he thought he was going to lose. Everybody thought he was going to lose. No one thought he was going to win. And after the Access Hollywood tape, I, I remember going out to dinner with my daughter and her boyfriend. And actually, yeah, my daughter, boyfriend and wife, I said, he's done. I said, you can't. You can't say that and get away. You can't say that. Here's someone in the Access Hollywood tape. One of two things is happening there. Number one, you're confessing to sexual assault, right? Or number two, you're Lying. Well, let me let me push back a little bit because okay. he said if you're a celebrity, they let you. They let so you. He, he implied there's consent of a sort. But before he even went there, he was talking about a host of a national show that he was trying to have sex with who was married. And he said, I went after her like a bitch. Right. And he's talking about his efforts to get a married woman to sleep with him while he's married. Right. To me, that kind of got lost in the wayside when it comes to where he was going to grab people. Okay, so let's let's just say there was consent, or let's say you do it and they let you do it because you're a celebrity, and then they don't say anything after the fact. We could we could debate that. However, any way you slice it, it's unsavory and disgusting, and it's ridiculous behavior to which you're confessing. Correct. And number two, let's say. It wasn't true. And he was just saying that. What kind of a lunatic makes up stories like that to try to impress Billy Bush? What's wrong with you that you need to make up such an outlandish pack of lies to talk about Billy Bush? And then everybody in women, I've heard say, oh, yeah, it's locker room talk. It's like, what are you, what? Do you hate yourself? I mean, what, what's What's wrong? So I thought he was done at that point. And he, and of course, then he won. He lost the popular vote by a big margin. And he said, oh, there's voter fraud. All oh, this voter fraud, three to five million votes. And so then he got that genius Chris Kobach to head up the Voter Fraud Commission. They found nothing, absolutely nothing. So now again, he's polling way down 
and it's all about voter fraud. And so he's trying to, here's, here's someone who will tear down the post office, who will question the legitimacy. Have you ever in your, in your life or in your knowledge of history, have you ever heard a president openly question the validity of an American no, election? And he just said this week, if I lose, it's because it's rigged. Right. And a president of the United States really saying something like this, look, it's gotten out of hand. And Anne Applebaum in a piece in The Atlantic, and she knows about totalitarianism. She said, at this point, if you are still with Trump, you are a collaborator. You are an accomplice or an accessory. You have culpability. Do you feel that way? Yes, I do. And th what you have to remember is, is that throughout history, there are people who are on the wrong side of history. You know, historians estimate that at the, during the Revolutionary War, roughly 20% of the colonists were supporters of King George. Now, many of those were merchants. Because this is all about the it was all about the almighty coin of the realm, but but so there's twenty percent of the people there in the in the American Civil War, the the Confederates were on the wrong side of history. They they just were. It, it you can't I, you can't sugarcoat it. You cannot build. And when people say this whole states' rights fabrication that came after the after reconstruction the fact of the matter is is that in the cornerstone speech at their convention alexander stevens said and he was the vice president of the confederacy by the way he said this institution is built on the natural order that white people are superior to negroes and we are going to be the country that proves that to be true. And that's the basis on which this kind of country is built. It's in the cornerstone speech. You can look it up. Right. White supremacy. But I thought that was consigned to the dustbins of history. But now I'm alarmed to see white supremacists among us. I had a producer who turned out to be a white supremacist, as exposed by Nine News, among other places. Are you surprised at white supremacy or did you always think it was there? I always thought it was there, and I always thought it was maybe one in four Americans. I'm saddened to learn it might be closer to four in 10, but that's where we are. And I'm not surprised because it has always been there. There are always people who hide their views, but you have to remember, I grew up in Nebraska, and, I, and I've, you know, I've been on the front porch where you hear the older gentleman talking, and I've been in the kitchen where you have people talking and some of the language used and some of the terms used, and it's disquieting, but you know, and I've known it's been there for a long, long time, and it's, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's a reality. I believe that not our generation, and we're the tail end of the baby boomers, I believe that our children's generation, my daughters are both millennials, and you know, I, I really think that millennials forward, and I know millennials take a lot of heat for doing this and doing that, and millennials, oh, it's millennials' fault. But I, I, when it comes to millennials, I think they view race differently, and I think they view it more equitably, and I think they view it more reasonably, like, yeah, whatever. I think they view gay marriage 
more equitably. It's like, oh, those are two adults. It's no big deal. I just think that things take time. And we're, we're still so early in the process of these changes that we're not quite there. But I, I have great hope for, for our children. But I, I did what I did. And my girls were very upset with me because they were afraid for me. And somewhat afraid for themselves because I, I got some really vicious feedback and some threatening feedback, and they were afraid. And my wife was afraid. Still, she still is. In fact, we, Craig, after, after I agreed to do this, she and I had a pretty spirited discussion as to why I should or maybe shouldn't do this podcast. And after I fully explained my reasoning, she said, okay, but she's, she's worried about our safety because the fanatics threaten violence and they're okay with violence. In fact, they enjoy violence. Think about this. The same people, the armed, heavily armed people who are on the Capitol steps in Michigan who were protesting against wearing a face mask to stop the spread of a deadly virus. Who are responding to Donald Trump tweeting, liberate Michigan. Yes, that's right. And they're pushing their way in, trying with, with guns, trying to get into the chambers of the state legislature. And by the way, nobody got shot. Nobody got tear gassed, imagine. They're, they're doing that to not wear a mask. Those same people do not show up in Portland saying, hey, these masked federal people here, this is, an, this is an overreach of federal power. You can't pluck people off the streets. See, that's, that's not conservative thinking. People say, well, I'm a conservative. Well, if you, conservative means limited government, local control, and, and not this overarching, overreaching federal control of, of individuals and certainly not local law enforcement. And they can say, oh, well, they were graffitiing on federal buildings and they're there for that. They, they took a much larger role than that. And, and in my view, and this is speculation and I will label it as such, in my view, the Portland experiment was a dress rehearsal test run for for using similar paramilitary groups for other means. And I given what we've seen with the post office, the w willingly and openly dismantling the post office and saying out in the open, it is because I think we can't have mail-in voting. I, I don't want that to happen because I might lose. What's to stop someone to send military, a paramilitary presence in to a critical precinct or juncture in a swing state and go, we think there's a lot of voter fraud here. And we're going, they're either going to intimidate people out of voting or slow down the voting process so they don't get all the votes counted and to try to limit, to try to suppress vote. I absolutely believe it was a test run. And here's how we stop that test. Brave guys like Marty Coniglio speak up and their voice is heard. We're not going to have these anonymous federal troops in our major cities. Good people like Marty will stand up. And I understand your wife's concerns because Trump enforcement syndrome, I mean, there are Trump enforcers out there who make it their life's work to troll you or to troll me. And 
we still have to stand up because their aim is to get us to back down, not speak out at these various atrocities. Look at the post office situation. I think there's been enough pushback that maybe they're going to back off. Now, I don't know how they're going to put those sorting machines back together again. Maybe the damage has been done. But Pelosi, who I, I was not a huge fan of Nancy Pelosi going into the Trump years, but I admire her now. And I want to grow up to be Adam Schiff. That presentation, oh. he and Hakeem Jeffries and Jason Crow and the whole House impeachment manager team put on. I'm in the business. I thought it was exceptional. What about you? I think that Adam Schiff's presentation, especially his summation in the impeachment trial, should be required reading for any history class in every public school, every school in the United States. I thought that Adam Schiff in the in the in all of the hearings was professional and complete. And I and and by comparison, Representative Nunes is an embarrassment. And I I don't know how to I don't think we can bridge the gap between those people like like me and and you who who feel like Adam Schiff did a wonderful job and I do think the impeachment the house managers did an amazing job and you watch it and and the defense the defense in that trial I come on was pathetic you you're an attorney it was, it was pathetic and it was pathetic because they knew it could be pathetic cuz they knew it was in the bag it was a fix no doubt about it There are some things you just have to do as a responsible adult, like end-of-life planning. Even before this COVID crisis, you should have been making those plans. If you have children, God forbid, what happens to them if something happens to you? And what about your assets? You need to write these things down. You need to meet with a lawyer who asks the right questions and you can give them answers and the right documents can be drawn up. I know that lawyer. His name is Michael Bailey. Michael Bailey is my lawyer. He's my wife's lawyer. He does end-of-life planning, and he does ask those correct questions. He's easy to talk to. He's got a laid-back demeanor, which is something I like in a lawyer, especially a lawyer who handles matters like this. The number to call Michael, 720-394-6887. 720-394-6887. He's taken great care of me and my wife. He'll take great care of you. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. So I think the pushback is working, Marty Coneglio. And I see a little pushback in the media at Channel 9 of all places. Next with Kyle Clark, that's a different kind of newscast. And they don't necessarily say, well, on the one hand, Donald Trump this, on the other hand, that. Do you agree that's a new and different and better kind of newscast? It is a it is definitely a different kind of a newscast, and they've they've had their moments. I think that in some ways it, it may be too personality driven, you know, and in in some respects all media is personality driven. And that might be too personality driven, but I think they're more on the right 
path where you could say that. Now, what has happened in my experience and in the, in the feedback that, that I used to see when I worked at Nine News was that people would just say, oh, well, that's just you know Kyle Clark's opinion, and he doesn't know anything. And, and sadly, something that's happened in media, which I didn't address earlier and I think is a, is a serious problem, is that media, TV news in particular, has has seeded like oh people know all the facts we don't we don't have to tell them the facts it's a conversation now we're having a conversation with people and what we've done we I still use the the first person but what what the what TV news has done is taken people's opinions and people's thoughts and people's beliefs and put them up and presented them as facts and and we've lost track of what an opinion is and what a fact is what reality is as like you know i like regular m&ms more than peanut m&ms there i think they're better that's an opinion but to say regular m&ms are superior to peanut m&ms because peanut m&ms give you venereal disease well that's that's purporting a fact that's that's not true. And we they present stuff like that all the time where they'll just put up somebody's Facebook post and says, oh, well, so and so says this, you know, the sky is pink and the sun rises in the West, you know, and the, the sun orbits around the Earth. And and that is a is just a, a degradation of the news. But we've seeded that because we're we're pandering to what audience is left. And you've seen that. Also in newspapers, you know, newspapers were always kind of the bastions of, you would say they were fairly liberal and you might have one little conservative columnist here or there. And now newspapers are just, with the exception of, say, the Washington Post and uh, you could say the New York Times, though the Times is spotty, I think. But a lot of these local newspapers like the Denver Post, for instance has totally gone over. Like Charles Kruthammer is now, he's like the liberal columnist in that newspaper because they know who their audience is. The only people buying newspapers anymore are cranky old conservative white guys. And so you've got to pander to that audience, which they are. Ouch. I just picked up my Denver Post off the driveway this morning. Charles Krauthammer, I wish he would have lived to see this. Maybe... It's Maybe. better he didn't because he was a harsh Donald Trump critic and that guy was smart as hell. But there are a lot of Republicans who have really put out the best advertising, tearing down Donald Trump at the Lincoln Project, George Conway, Rick Wilson, Steve Schmidt. I think those guys are amazing because they've done what you did, put it all on the line and said, I'm not going any further with this without taking a stand. Right. And now, the difference between them and us is they're, they're taking money in, and I've, I actually, <laughs> I've given money. Oh, that makes I've your, given money that, away. That makes your message even more powerful. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but yes, I agree with that. And they have been, they've been very effective, and they have been truthful. It's not as though they're making anything up. It, I would add George Will. Of to that course, to yes. that group as well, George Will, who's a and Bill Crystal and and and, and, right. and people who now, if you're in the cult, 
you you denigrate them. It's, oh, they're irrelevant, and who cares what they say? And oh, they're they're rhinos, you know, and all this sort of thing. And he goes, these are actual conservatives who believe in conservative policies, where I may not agree with their policy, but they believe in the rule of law. They believe in the Constitution. They believe in the safeguards built into the democracy. And so once we've agreed on that, and we've you know in principle we've agreed on that, now we have a system of government. We have a society, and we can run it. Once you degrade that and you have an attorney general who acts like the president's personal lawyer, that's completely inappropriate and that's not a safeguard. When you have a, the Senate of the United States, which comes out before a trial announcing many of whom will announce, they announce their verdict before they even heard the evidence in the trial. That's fundamentally wrong. If you were doing, if you were going to go to trial, Greg, mm -hmm. and you were doing jury selection and you walked up, juror number 473, what's your opinion of you know, the role of policing in shoplifting charges? And the, and the person blurts out, goes, that dude is guilty. I can just tell by looking at his face. That jury gets kicked That's out. That's Of course, impeachment's an inherently political act. They yes. bring up George Will and a number of brave conservatives. But where are they in Colorado? Look at the Colorado Republican Party. When you put out your tweet, who jumped on you right away? A guy named Ken Buck, head of the Colorado Republican Party, an incumbent congressman in Weld County. What do you make of Colorado Republicans and the unwillingness of any leaders in that group to stand up to Donald Trump? I'm very disappointed. I, I believe that as uh, Colorado, I've lived in Colorado longer than I've lived anywhere. I consider Colorado to be home. I hope Colorado will continue to be my home for a long time to come. And I am just horribly, I'm just terribly disappointed by the, in, in fact, in the primary out west with the, the Bobert. Bobert, thank you. Pete Tipton. Yeah, Pete Tipton. And so you have somebody who's even more Trumpy. QAnon. Yeah, and a QAnon supporter, which, oh, geez, do we even have the, the, you have the president of the United States retweeting these crazy QAnon theories? It's, it's so overwhelming that. I think most people tune it out or filter it out. For instance, again, going back to media news, we'll put up certain presidential tweets. In my view, you put up every one. If you're going to do one, it now, because official policy is made via Twitter, which is insane in and of itself, and it's not even the, the POTUS account, it's the personal account of Donald Trump. The personal Twitter account of Donald Trump is now an official government right. spokes. It's now a visual government form of communication. I think that the news has the responsibility of putting up every one of his tweets. And if people saw every one of his tweets, they go, what is that? Guy? Number one, how does he have time to do all this? Well, he has time to do all this because he's not really working or doing anything. Certainly doesn't read his presidential daily brief because he knows nothing about Russian bounties. On, on American service members. And what's it been, two months? We still haven't heard one rebuke of Russians, one further investigation. There hasn't been one hearing into it, nothing. It's like, oh, I didn't know anything about it. It was written in the presidential daily brief. It was there, and it's like, 
dude, you either didn't read it, you forgot it, or you don't want to talk about it because it's your boss. Right. Vladimir Putin. And where is Ken Buck? Has he spoken up about that? Let's play a little game of Imagine This, Marty Coneglio. Walking in the room right now is Ken Buck. What would you say to him? I would say I wish you had the same level of concern for troops serving in Afghanistan and their safety and the fact that uh, there was credible enough evidence to be included in the presidential daily security briefing that there are bounties being put on American soldiers, uh, service members in Afghanistan to the Taliban. I wish you had the same level of concern and ire for that that you did for me pointing out that nationalized policing controlled by one political party is not necessarily a very American thing to do. Imagine, Marty Coniglio, you were put in charge of nine news. They turned over the general manager job to you. What would you do? Could you improve it? I doubt that I could. I really do. I think that they have tremendous challenges and they're trying to walk a tightrope where their customers, their their customers are saying, "Oh, there's too much bad news." And "Oh, it's all it's all destruction." And "Oh, it's death." And "Oh, it's it's crime." And "We can't take it anymore. Tell us some good news." And they have taken that feedback and and run with it. So I I don't know that there is a lot more you could do. I would have to I I I believe you can frame things more honestly. I think that you could provide more context than than you currently do in certain stories, but in the balance of what stories are in there, I, the marketplace is spoken, and unfortunately, you know, in this here we are doing a podcast in this in this multimedia universe. You're now a bit. They're now not a bit player. They're a big player, but they're they're not the player that they used to be, and that's and that makes it difficult. I, if, I feel for him. What if Donald Trump gets stopped on November third, and the Republicans pay a big price? Will there be a shakeout in the media or otherwise? What do you anticipate? I don't think there'll be a lot of difference. You'll see nationally. You'll see Fox double down because then, then they will be in their natural position. What's What's always fascinated me here, especially over the last three years, is is Fox is just everybody on Fox is outraged. It's all outrage, and it's all, oh, my God, outrage. And it's like, you won. And you had the Senate, and you had everything yeah, for a you had, while there. You had the, the Senate, House. you had the House, you had the Senate, you had everything, and they were outraged. Everything right. was outraged. So they'll be back in their, in their natural ecosystem, which is minority outrage. And there's an assault on Christmas, and there's a war on Thanksgiving, and there's a war on Christianity, and all these fake wars that they make up. So that they'll have a nice, their their core won't go anywhere. They'll do they'll do quite well. I think that the other other news outlets will be able to cover other things because we won't have. It will be like no matter what you thought of of Barack Obama as a as a statesman or as a president or of his policies it was a virtually scandal free administration their ethical standards were through the roof and and so pretty good 
Yeah, they were pretty good. And so Fast and Furious wasn't very good. Fast and Furious was not a winner. That is true. But but I don't think you'll have the same. You're not going to have this daily mess of, oh, this person is misusing misusing funds. And of course, we, we have the Secretary of State who's being investigated for misusing taxpayer money for his own personal benefit. What's he do? He fires the inspector general. So he fires the person who's investigating. So, oops, now nobody can investigate me. It's all of the safeguards are being taken away. And when you take away all the safeguards, all the people who are in power want to do is consolidate power. And that's when you end up with Vladimir Putin. That's when you end up with Kim Jong-un. And I don't believe that anybody really wants to be there. Now, you're not going to change TV. But nope. what about radio? Have you done a lot of radio through the years? And do you think there might be room in the market for real talk radio where it's not just worshipful of Donald J. Trump? I think it would be lovely if there, if we could get to that point. I, that's one thing that's always fascinated me is that talk radio is so dominated by those types of voices. And there's really like, I, you know, for lack of a better term, progressive talk radio or even balanced talk radio. Right. It doesn't seem to have much traction and and maybe that's just who's drawn to am radio <laughs> i think that's that. part of the problem plus you have organizations the one i work for salem their mission is to spread christianity and to do it through christian channels conservative talk but i thought when i went over there that i can work with these guys hugh hewitt's big mitt romney supporter dennis prager i thought was a reasonable guy yeah but I witnessed how they've gotten in bed with Donald Trump, and it's frightening as hell. They got rid of Michael Medved, mm -hmm. and the boss, Phil Boyce, told me, have you heard about the Medved rule? If you don't back Donald Trump, you're not going to work for Salem. Wow, what an admission to make. Yeah, and, that, and that's where, and that's the irony of modern media, where you'll have someone who's a supporter of the president say, oh, the media is biased, and they consume, the media they consume is the only media that actually is biased. They consume talk right. radio and they consume Fox News, and those are the only biased things. And what they, what they, they don't want news. They want reassurance and propaganda, and they want to be completely coddled in their current beliefs. And anything that's outside of that, oh, it's clearly, it's biased and it's fake. And so... That's that's what the the modern multimedia landscape has brought us, sadly. And we haven't even talked about Facebook, which Let's is do. is the well has has been revealed to be the number one purveyor of false, misleading misinformation and disinformation in the world, and increasingly the home of Trump supporters. Conservatives dominate Facebook, but liberals may dominate Twitter. You use that Twitter to. You know, to get to fired, back to get fired, <laughs> but you still are on Twitter. You have a lot of followers. How many? Sixteen thousand. I'm small potatoes. That's huge. How did you get it up that high? Well, just through yeah, weather forecasting. Yeah, just yeah, just over the years through weather forecasting, you get a lot. Sure, but it went up. I will say that in the and this is in the week after I got fired, it went up almost twenty five percent. So, you know, for whatever that in a 
you know, four bucks will get me a cup of coffee at Starbucks. But uh, it's only a dollar at McDonald's. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. So I could go there and get some fries too. I think you're going to be all right. And maybe if radio shakes out, you could do that. I appreciate you being on a podcast. Mention the business that you were involved in because you are an expert and you are selling your services, which I think is terrific. What I've been doing, and I've been dabbling in it off and on for a long time, but I've really gotten into it here, you know, just in the last month or so, is I do expert, what we call forensic meteorology and forensic weather for legal cases. So what we'll do is, here's an example of, of a case, and I won't mention any specifics, but the hailstorm of 2017, May 2017, there's an apartment complex in Wheat Ridge, and they get they get hail damage, and they get massive hail damage. And they have an adjuster come out from their insurance company, and they go, oh, we'll give you $300,000. And they go, oh, my gosh, we can't fix all this damage with $300,000. So they hire an independent adjuster, and the independent adjuster comes out and says, that oh, looks like about $6 million worth of damage. So the insurance company says, well, we're not going to pay you $6 million. So then these folks have to sue their own insurance company to get them to pay. Right. And the insurance company says, well, the hailstorm wasn't that bad. They hire a lawyer. Lawyer says, we're going to sue. The lawyer comes and gets a weather expert and says, okay, we need you to chronicle exactly what happened in exactly that location that day. What was the size of the hail? How long did it last? What's what's the likelihood of damage? So that's that's a relatively straightforward case that you would do. Was this that storm that ripped up Colorado Mills? Yes. Yes, it was. It was. It happened to be that one. And and just to give you an idea, and I, again, I won't say the name of the apartment complex. This storm went right over the top of that place with two and a half inch diameter hail, and so the the plaintiffs have a pretty good case. Yeah, because they have Marty Coniglio sure. on their side. Uh, are you on Joe Biden's side? We talked about George Will. I admire the guy because he's not only said I'm a conservative and I'm against Trump. But I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. None of this wishy-washy Gary Johnson, Evan McMullen, Kanye West voting. Isn't it a time to support Joe Biden? And are you doing so? And are you doing so enthusiastically? It wouldn't matter if I were doing it enthusiastically or not. I think that whole thing about voter enthusiasm is overblown. My Here's my view of a president. You put the, you put the needs and the security of the United States first. You work hard, you are competent, and you respond well to crises. I don't have to love you. I don't have to go out and scream and cheer and, and worship you. There are some people who are more charismatic than others. There are some people who are more appealing than others. There are some people you'd say, I would love, I would love it if they were my next door neighbors. I think that Vice President Biden is a, is a moral sensitive, law-abiding family man who has served his country extremely well. His late son, Bo, served this country with distinction and with heroism. I think that his wife is—I'd is, vote for her enthusiastically. I mean, I, I, I think that Jill Biden is just a whiz. I think she's amazing. I think she's intelligent and, and articulate and wonderful. I think she'd be a wonderful candidate as well. So the answer, short answer is, yes, I'm going to vote for Vice President Biden. I do so. Not necessarily that I agree with, with every Democratic 
piece of platform. Here's what I think is the, the difference right now in the two parties. And I think the Republican Party can be fixed. And I think the Republican Party needs to be fixed because you can't have a one-party system. Right. That, that doesn't work. When Democrats come up with something, they're believers. They are bleeding hearts, right? They, they really believe they can solve everything. They can do everything. They may come up with a policy that's wrongheaded or silly or unworkable. But you know what? They're sincere about it. They believe it. The modern Republican Party has abandoned Goldwater, has abandoned Eisenhower, has abandoned Reagan in that the policies and the positions are cynical. There's a stated policy. You know, the tax cuts are going to grow the economy and they'll pay for themselves. When they, they know, when the OMB comes out and say, no, they won't. They go, oh, those numbers are all wrong. Well, the numbers were right, and they've added $2.6 trillion to the debt, and they're the fiscal conservatives. That's, that's, that's the opposite of what you are. And this, you know, we're the party of law and order, and you've got convicted felon Paul Manafort, who was, who was in close contact with a member of the of the Russian intelligence GRU Kalimnik, close contact with him, sharing internal polling data with him, in close contact with WikiLeaks, who was knowingly taking hacked, illegally obtained materials from the DNC from WikiLeaks to the campaign. And you can't say you're the party of law and order. You, you can't. It's, it's cynical, and it's just a, it's a ploy to hold on power. Right, and Manafort's old partner, Roger Stone, oh. and WikiLeaks in bed with Putin. It's just right there in front of your face if you want to look at it. And we talked about Fox News, their coverage of the DNC. When Jill Biden spoke so impressively the other night, they put up a caption saying, Biden pretending to be the faith and family candidate. Now, you were brought up in a big Catholic family. Do you have any doubt that Joe Biden is a man of faith? No, I have no doubt whatsoever that Joe Biden is a man of faith. None whatsoever. And the, again, here's the irony. Here's the cynical irony. They put up a Chiron, you know, one of those, for, we're in the business, so we say Chiron, but an on-screen graphic that says Joe Biden pretends to be a man of faith. Donald Trump goes golfing every weekend. He doesn't even pretend to be a man of faith, and yet evangelicals flock to him. It, 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 it's this, this cynicism of what the reality is and what they pretend it to be is so infuriating. It, it's like, oh, we're full of faith, and oh, Donald Trump was sent by God. Donald Trump's at Bedminster. Donald Trump's at Mar-a-Lago. By the way, cheating at golf and driving his cart on the green, which is two cardinal sins right there. I mean, that should get him kicked out of any country club. Absolutely, except he owns the country club, and he well, apparently— Well, someone owns the country right. club. We're not sure. Right. Vlad Putin has maybe given him permission, and his sons even confessed when they started buying all these golf course properties, we have all the financing we need out of Russia. That's right. And, and here's the other thing, and something that has gotten lost. And as you said, you could go on and on right. and on and on. During the campaign, when 
then candidate Donald Trump said, Russia, I, I, I have no business dealings with Russia. We have nothing to do with the Russia. And they were negotiating for Trump Tower Moscow while he was campaigning to be president, which, and he was offering Vladimir Putin a fifty the million top dollar top floor on, on the highest skyscraper in Europe, and right. for Putin in Helsinki to say, "Oh, I don't know about Donald Trump; he's just another businessman." Give me a break! Yes, I mean it's it's outrageous. One guy lies, the other guy swears to it. But part of the problem with a lot of conservatives is the abortion issue. Now, you yeah. were raised Catholic. Right. And what do you say to people who respond, "Hey, I don't like Trump." But Biden would support abortion on demand. Donald Trump says he's against abortion. He's appointed the right kind of judges. Therefore, I'm voting that way. What do you say to those people, Marty? Well, I, I, I'm not a fan of abortion. I don't think that it's, you know, I think it is a, a measure of last resort. However, I, I do believe that in Roe v. Wade, please correct me, I think it's the 8th and 14th Amendment that are that are involved here. And and what we have to do is 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 you don't have to to love it, but under the the terms of the Constitution, you have to understand that there are th things that are going to happen. For instance, there will be terminated pregnancies. There will be unborn children who are killed. Now, those same conservatives will staunchly defend the Second Amendment, even though hundreds, if not thousands of people, thousands of people are killed by firearms every year. And that's like, yeah, it's the cost of doing business. That's, that's the amendment. So if all the amendments are equal, then from a legal standpoint, I think, I think you try to balance that. Though if you're a believer, if you're a true believer in life begins at conception and Trump is my man, I don't, you know, that that is an intractable argument. If that is your position and you will accept no alternative, what I would say is this. That's cool. Uh, let's have all these unborn babies born. However, once they're born, take responsibility for their health care. Don't tell me that you care about their health, their life, and their well-being while they are in the womb. But once they're born, eh, tough. It's yeah, health, health insurance, health care, that's your problem now. That's not pro-life. You can't be pro-life and be anti-health care. That is that's basically, that's an incompatible position to be in. And think of this. We created the entire the, the, cabinet-level position after 9-11. We created this whole Department of Homeland Security. We have the TSA. You're taking your shoes off. By the way, all the folks who won't wear a mask, they'll take their shoes off and take their belts off to get on an airplane, but they won't wear a mask. Uh, so we create this entire entity so that when you get on an airplane— Somebody's not going to bomb it, you crash, or somebody's not going to hijack it, and you're killed by a terrorist. But if you get cancer and you don't have health insurance, or in the old days, you did have health insurance that had annual limits or lifetime limits, and those ran out, and then all the costs were on you, your choice is die or bankrupt your family. So how come a, a terrorist can't kill me, but yeah, cancer can kill you? That's, that's your problem.
That's that's just fundamentally incompa- incompatible, and that's not pro-life. You can't say every life is valuable and every fetus is valuable, but once they're born, yeah, healthcare's a choice. That's your problem, not mine anymore. That's not pro-life. That is an inconsistent position, and, and they've got to come to grips with that. And they have done nothing but try to, to undermine the uh, Affordable Care Act, and only because it was Obama did it, only because it was labeled Obamacare. Everybody loves covering pre-existing conditions. Everybody loves no annual limits. Everybody loves no lifetime limits, but they hate Obamacare. That's insane. Obamacare gave you that. And I can say this with authority because, Craig, right now I have no health insurance. Right now, no health insurance, nothing. And the reason for that is that my former company has not figured out my COBRA plan just yet. So I have not yet even been able to sign up. And the marketplace is pretty darn expensive. You know why the marketplace is expensive? I learned this from one of the 6,000 health insurance brokers that's called me in the last three weeks because I put my name and number on the on the Colorado Health Exchange. Yeah, it's like, man. So when the ACA was created, they created... The, the ACA for the basic plans, and then they created a fund for the reinsurance market. And the reinsurance market would be where primary insurers could sell off some of their additional risk and some of their costs. And it was funded and went through. Well, when the Republicans took back over Congress in 2016, they killed all that. It was 2014. They killed all that stuff. So they killed the reinsurance market. So now the primary insurers had to bear all of the costs of the insurance, and they didn't have anywhere to put it. For instance, on your home, your primary insurer bears some of it, and I guarantee you they've sold some of the property and casualty insurance off to a reinsurance market. There are several large companies that do that, and they did the same thing in healthcare. Well, the Republicans went in and did away with the reinsurance market. And so the primary insurer was like, good, we have to bear all this cost ourselves. So they had to raise premiums. And that's when the Republicans said, see, see how expensive it is? It doesn't work. And look at all these insurers leaving the marketplace. So they, they, it's like they went out, cut the brake lines on the car, and then you drive the car and they go, see, the brakes don't work. That's a, that's a crappy car. And, and I'm living that. And I'm living that. And the idea that your health insurance, and I'm not, I don't know about the whole Medicare for all thing. I don't know. But maybe a reasonable public option, like I'd like the option to buy into the plan that the members of the Congress and Senate have. They have a pretty sweet health care plan. I would love to. Can I buy in, please, at the same cost you guys have? I would love that option because right now, because my health insurance was tied to my job, I have no health insurance. Well, here's your best hope, Joe Biden, because even though he's not for Medicare for all, he is for Medicare for 60-year-olds. And you already confessed you were born in 1960. Yeah. I can do the math. Couple so of months. Couple of luck. months, I'll be there. You are in luck, Marty Coniglio, if the right guy wins. What are you going to do to try to make that happen? Well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to talk to everybody I know, and I'm going to say you have to vote We have a natural remedy to these situations. We, we the people, have a remedy to situations like this. And that remedy is is the election. 
And I'm going to talk to everyone I know, and I'm going to say it's not enough to complain. It's not enough to grouse. It's you have to vote. That is the ultimate, the ultimate thing. Now, I will work. I'll, I will even volunteer to collect votes for folks who maybe are afraid to go to a polling place you know, for fear of coronavirus infected. I know that there are, are groups getting together who are going to go gather votes and deliver them to vote sites. Now, you know, that gets a little tricky because like, are they really going to deliver them or not? So I've got to be sure of the veracity of that. But I would do that for somebody who had a Republican-filled ballot as a Democrat-filled ballot. I don't care. I think everyone who can vote should vote. I've always been disappointed at the level of participation in our right. in our elections. I think that you know we have very low voter turnout in general, and that's a that's a level of of apathy that I don't think we can afford right now. We cannot afford that level of apathy. People who are sitting thinking. Yeah, it's going to be fine. It's always all right. Everybody always says it's going to be the end of the world, and it's always all right. But I can tell you, and and as a personal anecdote for me is, I a few years ago I went into the restaurant business. You know, I financed a restaurant with somebody who knew what they were doing. We it was out of town, and we had the fact of the matter is is, is it wasn't the best location. We we're probably a little too high priced. We it wasn't managed all that well with regards to food costs and all that. And it was a seafood kind of restaurant. And two months after we opened, the Deep Horizon uh, wow. oil spill went, and, and seafood prices went through the roof. And we lasted eighteen months and went bankrupt. So, so I can tell you, sometimes things don't work out. Sometimes things do go sideways. Sometimes it's it's not a happy ending. To the story, and I've I've lost enough family members in the last ten years to to various you know to a lot of cancer for even some people younger than I am in my family and extended family that I understand that sometimes the story does not have a happy ending, and that people have to take control. And my hope is, and I appreciate your your encouragement on these lines, but my hope is is that. By me doing what I did and, frankly, sabotaging my career, blowing up my career, a, a longstanding career that could have continued as long as I w had wanted it to. Things were going fine. I could, it could have been fine. I think this is so important that we have to stand up and 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 govern the way we're supposed to be governed. Right now in the United States, especially with these anti-mask folks, there's this very immature version of freedom. This idea of freedom is I can do whatever I want, and if you tell me to do something and I don't want to do it, I say no. Well, that's a four-year-old's version of freedom. And the United States wasn't formed on I can do whatever I want. The United States was formed of self-governance. We wanted the right to govern ourselves and not have some king on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean telling us what to do. Self-governance. And that's what we need to do. We need to govern ourselves. And self-governance means you set reasonable rules so you can have a, a, an equitable 
functioning society because if you just say, I don't want to pay attention to this law or that law, you are a criminal. And and you then outside right. the law. And I don't care what the law is. If if somebody says, Well, I don't want to wear a mask, I, I don't like it. Well, I could say, Well, you are now a threat to me. And so I'm gonna beat you over the head with a pipe wrench because you're a physical threat to me. So if you so it's crazy. Don't, I mean don't you, do can't, that. you can't or, you can't you can't take my card if you're going to do something there, like there that. <laughs> I, I, I think better days are coming. And I think the fact that you and I are having this conversation and we both put our jobs on the line, although I didn't put my day job on the line, you put your day job on the line. And I respect that. And I think we're emblematic of a lot of people who have said now is the moment. This is not just another election. Donald Trump is a uniquely bad guy. I occasionally turn into Fox just to see what they are saying. And Laura Ingram said, all they've got is orange man bad. Well, he is bad. He's extraordinarily bad. I didn't have anything to do with him being orange. He did that on his own. It's not his color. It's the fact that Donald Trump is a very bad man and he needs to be repudiated. And I think you will be, just like happened in 2018. I don't think you can win with an R behind your name in Colorado. He is toxic in Colorado, and I think that speaks well about this state. But there are other states where I don't have as much knowledge. I don't know about Michigan or the Midwest. You have better knowledge about that. But I'm predicting this, a complete repudiation of Donald Trump. And numerous stations saying we could use Marty Coniglio. We understand why he got upset about Donald Trump. And it's a plus on the ledger for Marty, not a minus. And I think you are going to have many job opportunities in the future. And I normally worry about a guy without health care, but you are, what, about 2% body fat? How do you <laughs> keep so fit and trim for a guy who's about to be 60? I exercise a lot. Tell us your routine. It's like it's amazing. Well, I have a dog, you know, like your two adorable dogs. I have an adorable dog, and we he has a morning walk and an evening walk. And my wife usually does a morning walk and I do the evening walk. And then on weekends I do both, which is between the two of them, it's probably six, six and a half miles a day. But I work out six days a week. I have a I basically have a gym in my basement. That's the best part of my house. Uh is I've got this it, it's not a big you know, it's you know. Basically. Have you always been in great shape like this? Well, I, I I have always been involved in athletics, and I I ran what sports? I ran track and played what football. Events? I was a sprinter, and I I ran both the hundred, two hundred, and the uh, sixteen hundred relay. I was a football player. I, I actually had a a full ride scholarship to UNC out of high school, which I decided to not do. I just thought. I, I couldn't see myself being able to play and, and go to school at the same time. What position did you play? I was a, I was a back. I did both like a strong safety, and I also was a running back. Tell us your greatest moment, the high school football. Uh, well, we were a state champion in Nebraska, oh. which was a big deal. And For the biggest league? or It was not. We were the second league because we were the Catholic school, and right. it goes by population. So but we they, are, they were the Catholics second. allowed to play the seculars? 
Uh, oh, sure. Yes, right, of course. Right. Yeah. We it could, wasn't just a no, Catholic No, no, it wasn't just a Catholic championship. No, we played everybody. It was just all the teams, as you would expect, are grouped by population of the school. Right. So we were what they called a class B school. So it was ABC. It went all the way down to six-man football back sure. in the day in Nebraska. But we we're class B. And that was a good moment. I'd say the best moment was our our high school playoffs, which they they just started high school playoffs. And we played three games in 11 days. Wow. We played our first game on a Tuesday and won that game fairly, fairly well. We played our second game on that following Saturday, which was a a hell of a contest against a very good team that gave us a great test. And it was in that game, which I, I set the record for the longest fumble return for a touchdown. It wasn't my wasn't my doing that, that it was a quarterback option play. And two of my my good friends who are also just tremendous football players just crushed this quarterback. I mean, just cut him in half. And he dropped the ball. And I'm like, I pick it up and run 77 yards. And and it wasn't Hard. I mean, it was just so. I was anybody gaining on you, or you left? No, I was pretty. I was pretty fast. I'm not fast anymore. Actually, I'm staving off a knee replacement right now. uh, But but I was pretty fast, and so that was great. And then we had the final game, the Friday after, which was actually we won that pretty handily, and it was a wonderful. It was a wonderful thing. And the thing that was great about it was when my parents came down onto the field afterward. And it was just a, a really joyous event. And I still have good friends who were played on that team with me. In fact, one of my my really good friends who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, and, and I have had conversations with him lately about hopefully changing his mind Nice. Send him this podcast. Well, right. I, I will send it to him and see see what he has to think. But we have what's re- his name? Let's shout him out. Jim. Jim Fisher. He's out there, and and he's a COVID nineteen survivor. He's uh, he's actually had it and and got through it. But he did say, month and a half out. I, I talked to him on the phone last week, and he said, you know, my lungs don't feel right. I'm going back to the doctor. Does he know how he got it? He doesn't. He he works. You know, he works in a business where you're around people all the time. He does. He works in natural stone. To give a shout out to the natural stone guys, but he, you know, putting in kitchens and stuff like that. He's just in and out. And they were deemed in Iowa. You know, they didn't have any mask mandates. He's in Des Moines, Iowa. They didn't have any mask mandates, and they're out here and there. And he was actually in quarantine when his daughter was having uh, her second child, so he wasn't able to be there because he was, he was sick, but he's, it's, it's a, it's a serious, back to coronavirus and COVID, Mm -hmm. it's a serious disease. And, and there are long-term, you may not die, right? But there are long-term damages, the scarring of the lungs and the problems with the heart that are not well understood. And, and when we, he and I spoke back around the 4th of July and he was, ah, it's like a cold, ah, it's no big deal. And I, I was complimenting him last week. I said, man, I'm, I'm so glad that it was so easy for you and that it wasn't that bad. And he said, well, I got to tell you, my lungs are not right. And he said, I don't know what asthma feels like. He mm-hmm. said, but I just feel like 
somebody squeezing my chest all the time. And so I have not, we haven't spoken since, and I think he was going to go back for additional testing. But that's why I, I say to people, be kind to those around you and be respectful and wear a mask. It doesn't mean that you won't get it. It's not this this whole, oh, it's my choice, my body, my choice. It's when you don't wear a mask, it's not about you, it's about everybody else. And that's, to me, that's like saying, you know what? It's my car, my choice. I'm going to down this fifth of vodka and I'm going to drive down I-25 at 120 miles per hour because it's my car. I want to. That's that's a risk. You're putting other people at risk, not right. yourself. And that brings us back to Donald Trump, who's touring the country this week right after his brother died. Oh, my gosh. No social distancing, no mask mandates. The guy is the worst role model in the world. And again, I think most Americans are fed up with it. And America has a tendency to bounce pendulum to pendulum. But Joe Biden, in my mind, he's a moderate. And oh, yeah. maybe we can get our balance. And maybe our reaction to Donald Trump will be from this extreme selfishness to, hey, we we need to be better than this, America. And the Trump years were not good. He's deliberately divisive. He's doing the work of somebody who hates America. That's my feeling. We're about to wrap up, Marty. I want you to say whatever you want about Donald Trump, how he led you to make the decisions you've made, and if you feel good about it now. I do. I had a text exchange with one of my good friends at, who still works at Nine News this morning, and I said, I don't know if people have forgotten about me, if my 15 minutes are completely up, if if what I did, if by sacrificing my career, I have accomplished nothing. That's my biggest fear, Craig, is I wake up often in the middle of the night because that's still my sleep schedule, but I wake up and I think, wow, did I throw this away? Did I throw away? I mean, honestly, life on easy street. I could have worked easily for the next 10 years and been comfortable and fine. Did I throw it away for nothing? Are people just going to go, oh, oh, well, what an idiot. He shouldn't have done that. I don't know the answer to that. But what I know is you can't be dishonest, amoral, sociopathic, and completely and utterly only interested in what is good for you personally. And serve this country. And where I am is, I, I found myself, I, I've never considered myself like a patriot. You know, I'm not like, I've never said, oh, I'm a proud patriot. I looked at what is happening and I thought to myself, I like the idea of America. I like it. I think that, that a government of the people, by the people, for the people, I like that idea. That is a great idea because you see China, North Korea, Russia, Turkey, Venezuela. You see places where this is not the case and, and your life is not as full and not as rich as it could be. And so for anybody who say, if you don't like America, leave, I, I'm saying I love the ideal of America and I want to reach that ideal. You cannot reach that with a with a deeply, deeply corrupt 
president and a set of enablers in one political party who are going to allow him to do it. And those folks have to go. And I'm not saying shut down the Republican Party. That's a bad idea. What I'm saying is rebuild the Republican Party on some of the core values that, that on which it's built, which are, are solid and, and absolutely wonderful values to, to have, and rebuild from there and, and put this experience, for lack of a better term, in the history books as, as a lesson, as a, as, a, as a warning to what can happen. If, and if my tweet was anything, if I could, if I could have it mean anything, it would be, this is a cautionary tale, and I'm warning you. If you don't think it can happen here, you're wrong. It can happen. It is happening. It's happening incrementally, and it's happening amidst all this chaos of all these crazy things going on that you can't keep track of it all so that you don't have your eye on the ball, and when you get back to the ball, you realize it's too late and you've lost. I can tell you are super well informed, Marty. You did not come into this situation lightly. You read a lot. You've studied the situation. You have a scientific background that leads you to your conclusions, and you're great behind a mic. Are you willing to talk about this with anybody? I'm so honored to get this exclusive first interview with you. But if somebody on talk radio said, hey, let's change it up. I'm going to invite Marty Coniglio on and have a bit of a debate. Are you willing to do that? I'd be happy to do that. And if somebody in a Rotary Club or some other civic organization said, I'd like to hear the story of Marty Coniglio, would you do that? I, I would. We'd have to do it virtually, but sure, right. I would be happy to do that. I, I would, because I think it's important. And if I have never been comfortable with the notion of celebrity, when people go, oh, you're a celebrity, I was like, oh, God, really? I, I've never thought of that. However, now, if that helps, if, if, that, if that is a deciding factor in somebody wanting to hear this information, I'm willing to use whatever little Barbie dollhouse celebrity I have, however small it may be, I would use it because I think it's that important because there are people who have sacrificed much more than I have in service to this country. When I when I registered for selective service in 1978, the draft was over. The military was winding down. You know, we were, we were recovering from Vietnam, and and it's been an all voluntary military since then. And so, you have to be really impressed and grateful to people who volunteer for military service, and. I am. And so that's why I, I, I look at people who have given their lives, people who have given parts of their body, people who have given their, their, their mental well-being in service of this country. And I think, yeah, my sacrifice isn't all that big. So I'm willing to do whatever if there's more because it, it's critically important because this, this whole system of government, the great American experiment, is an experiment, and experiments can fail if you don't 
maintain them properly. We can't let this really this this incredible experience and this incredible accomplishment of what this country is and what this country can be. We can't let it go because we're just too busy watching Netflix to pay attention to. Let's bring it full circle back to your late brother, Tim, who is a major in the military, right? Right. Airborne Ranger. God bless you, brother, Tim. You said at the outset you wished you could talk to your older brother under these circumstances now, but I bet you can in your way. If Tim were alive and he could contribute to this conversation and give some pat on the shoulder, maybe a little slap upside the head to his little brother, Marty. What do you think Tim would be saying about you right now? He would, he would have it. It would be colorful language. And he would say, you go after it. And I had a text exchange with my oldest brother after this occurred. And he said, you know, when, when we saw one of the critical moments for me was when we saw those, those, you know, purported federal agents mm -hmm. beating that U.S. Navy Academy graduate. Right, with his Navy sweatshirt on. With his on. Navy sweatshirt on. Yeah. It looked like he could have played football. Well, and, and they're beating him. And when they were beating him on the knee and he didn't move, and uh, believe me, with the knee pain I have, I thought, that is a tough man. And then they pepper sprayed him and they're leveling automatic weapons at him. And, and all he did was say, remember your oath to the Constitution. That's what triggered that response. And... I saw that, and and I thought about my father, my late father, and my late brother Tim seeing these goons abusing a veteran of the United States of America's naval, any military service, and they would have said, what a bunch of chicken shits. And that's what both my father Anthony and what my brother Tim would have said. And the chief chicken shit is the guy who had bone spurs to avoid the military, the guy who ordered those people to beat on that guy wearing the Navy sweatshirt. He's the problem. And to the extent that anybody took your tweet as an attack on the military or the police, wasn't this all aimed at Donald Trump? 100%. And you have to remember what triggered me was an attack on a veteran, right? Right. That's that's wrong. That was wrong. And, and it was done with impunity. And it was done without thought. And it was done. And they treated him like he wasn't even human. And that's wrong. And what, what my members of my family who've served in the military would say about the commander in chief is he has repeatedly violated his oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States against all adversaries, foreign or domestic. He has violated that oath, and he's got to go. Okay, one last thing. Will you agree with me on the future? It's going to be bright. This country is going to rise up and repudiate Donald Trump. And if that happens, how will you feel? I, I do agree that, you know, fingers crossed, if polling is correct, that we will do that. And, and I'm hopeful that folks who are supportive now, once this has ended, they, they may be like, like an addict. You know, once you get off whatever substance you're addicted to, you go, oh my gosh, that was terrible. That was a bad idea. I'm hopeful 
that we can get to that place. And and America is has lurched and and it's not kind of by any stretch been perfect. I mean, we lived through the civil unrest and the social unrest of the 60s and all the Vietnam War protests and the the assassination of President Kennedy and and Bobby and and Martin Luther King. So so just incredibly volatile time in the 60s and early 70s, and, and we survived that. And we survived World War II. We survived World War I with the pandemic of the flu then. We survived the silver crash of the 1880s. We survived the Civil War, which can you imagine the scope of that in today? And, and, we, and this nation survived it. So yes, I think we can survive and we can do better, but we have to repudiate authoritarianism. Because if we go four more years, the guardrails will be gone. There will be no, there, there won't be, there, there, there will be nothing to do. You could impeach him again. Right. And, and that goes, and I know we're, we're wrapping up, but I, I think it's equally important that the Senate be flipped. The Senate is just, it's a roadblock to any, any kind of progress. I agree. It it has it's equally important and and, and as uh, unfortunate as it is, I think Senator Gardner needs to be defeated. He he has not proven himself to be an independent, strong voice for Colorado, an independent, strong voice for right and wrong, an independent, strong voice for what's best in the United States. He has been a protector and an enabler of Donald Trump. I shared a lot of microphone time with Cory Gardner. He could not have been nicer to my son and myself when we were in Washington. I just, I, I never thought I would have to turn against Cory Gardner, but turn against him, I will, for his protection racket with Donald Trump. I just think that that is something he has to be held accountable for. So my final question, let's assume the repudiation. Let's assume the Senate flips. You talked about all the things we've gone through as baby boomers. That includes Watergate and Gerald Ford making the decision to pardon Richard Nixon. Marty Coniglio, my last question. Should Donald Trump and his cronies be held accountable after January when hopefully he leaves office? Yes. There has to be an accounting. There, you cannot, you can't be without consequence. And I can say that because I suffered a consequence voluntarily that a lot of people wouldn't be willing to do. Throwing away a very, very nice career for the sake of an ideal. And I strongly believe that you cannot let this level of criminality Go. You can't sweep it under the rug because fundamentally, I think that's the problem we made after the Civil War. It's like we didn't want to deepen the wounds. We didn't want to have all these trials for people who were traitors. We just let them go home. And that has festered in this country for 160 years now. And, and I think that it was a mistake. Now, that's hindsight 2020. It, given the bloodbath is like, who would have the energy to, to have war crimes trials against the principles of the Confederacy? I totally understand why they did what they did. But we, we can't let this go. You cannot let it go because it is a, it's just a fundamental 
abdication of the rule of law. And if, if you're not going to be governed by laws, then we really are. We may as well just be cavemen. You are talking to the right guy. Marty, I can't tell you how honored I am that you chose to speak with me. We will let this long conversation out there. And if people want to get a hold of you, is it martyconiglio.com? Well, I, I have my website is W-X-P-E-R-T. Actually, it's the, T-H-E, W-X-P-E-R-T dot com. And you can hit me on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. You know, you can you can find me and talk to me. And, and you know, I'm, I'm working on an opinion piece that I may be submitting to a written publication here soon. And it's just titled Why I Did It. Very similar to the conversation that we just had. Well, you've expressed yourself well. Keep speaking out. I'm proud of you. I think you are a patriot. And I think your late father and brother would be very proud of you. I hope so. Thank you. Marty Coniglio. Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler Training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Oh, what a day, what a life, what a world, a world in which I've known Mitch Morrissey for the majority of my life. We got to know each other at the Denver DA's office. We were both courtroom prosecutors. And we played a lot of sports together. Mitch, welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Well, thanks for having me, Craig. It's been a while. 
I know it. Mitch went on to be the three-term DA in Denver. Did I get that right? Yes. I was elected in 2004, started in 2005, and was term limited then in 2017. And I know that's darn shame. You don't like those term limits. Wouldn't you like to still be the Denver DA if you could? Well, it'd be a tough time to be, but, you know, I... I was a DA during a lot of tough times, so I think we would have been up to the challenge. And, yeah, I mean, had I not been term limited, I'm sure I would have run for re-election. I looked up the the phrase career prosecutor, and there was a picture of Mitch Morrissey. Do you accept that kind of title? Well, I did up until 2017 before I started a, a startup. Now I'm the CFO of a small startup, so... Yeah, I was a career prosecutor, and I'm still kind of in the business, but I don't go to court anymore, Craig. You get to do that. I do, but you're keeping your law license active. You never know, Mitch. Oh, I do have my law license, sure. And there's nobody knocking down my door to hire me as a prosecutor. I mean, I work with prosecutors currently. I had a very good experience with the guy who's running for DA out in Douglas and Arapahoe who did the cold case that we solved. You know, I still interact with them, but, you know, it's not my job anymore. What about criminal defense? Could you ever do that? I could. I could do criminal defense. My father did for years. My grandfather was the U.S. attorney for Colorado, and then he did some criminal defense with his partner who was a famous criminal defense attorney in Colorado, Fred Dickerson. They were partners for almost their entire lives, starting at DU, World War One, and then, you know, they were partners throughout their careers. And Dickerson really taught my father how to be a defense attorney. My brother does a little defense work, although he'd rather do personal injury cases. But yeah, I could do it, Craig, in the right situation, you know. Sure. <laughs> kind of like you, you know, you could you could do it. I've seen you do it. Yes, I can do both, but I still think of myself as a former prosecutor, and when I'm described that way, I don't shrug that off because that was a major part of my life, 16 years. Oh, yeah, and you were good at it. Thank you. You were very good at it, Craig. I watched you many times. I appreciate that, and you were great at your job, too, and we both had a certain level of intensity, and the other thing that we have in common Your old man was a lawyer. Your grandpa was a lawyer. Of course, your grandpa, a very prominent U.S. attorney, my grandpa, a working man in the Sims building. And I think about those times, you know, the Ku Klux Klan era has been talked about in the context of Stapleton, but our grandpas lived through that era. Did your grandpa ever pass down those stories? Yeah, you know, a little bit. You know, my my grandpa died when I was about eight, so I never really got a chance to. And he was sick most of the time. You know, he was a chain smoker, and, you know, he was one of those guys that never had a cigarette, never had an unlit cigarette. He'd light one after mm-hmm. the other, and emphysema got him. And, you know, he's kind of he was kind of grumpy. So I, I never really got to sit down and talk to him about it. But, you know, obviously my dad knew a lot about it. And we got to work with Judge Moore, 
who Justice Moore, who lived through that. The great Justice O. Otto Moore, who is part of the Colorado Supreme Court. You know, he did some wild things as a prosecutor. He did some wild things against the Klan. And then, of course, you know, the Klan really went after the Denver DA. Phil Van Syce tried to end his career. So he, he fought them the whole time he was the DA. And it may have been why he was only a one-term DA. But, yeah, he was a very popular guy until the Klan went after him. You know, my grandpa was a little grumpy himself, and he smoked cigars back to back, and I only knew him till I was about fourth grade, just like you lost your grandpa, I lost mine, but I heard about it through my father, similarly, but my grandpa Harry, who was very smart, had to send a non-Jewish lawyer to court in Denver, because otherwise they wouldn't get a fair break, and he wanted that for his clients, and Speaking of Otto Moore, once when I was an intern, and my God, have the great Justice O. Otto Moore in our presence, he yelled from across the room, Silverman, get over here. And I'm like, wow, what did I do? You know, did I put a terrible paragraph in a brief? Or, and I said, yes, sir, what's up? And he, he said, I've got a bone to pick with you. I said, what is that? He said, but for your grandfather, I would have been number one at the Westminster School of Law. Yeah, yeah, that's a great story. And I took that as great compliment that he knew my grandpa, Harry, and respected him as a scholar of the law. And you and I, we go way back. Are there going to be any more Morrissey lawyers in the chain? Yeah, well, I have a nephew who's a lawyer up in Fort Collins. He's not a Morrissey, but he's my nephew. And he actually has a, a very good practice. And I think he's taking a position in the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association. And, you know, he's doing a great job. His name's Sam Cannon. But right now, you know, none of my kids are interested in the law and they have professions. But just one quick Otto Moore story. We were getting ready for the bar exam as interns. And Judge Moore came in and Dave Dansky asked him one of the questions. And he got it wrong. It was on self-defense. And about a day later, Judge Moore came walking into the library where we all were. And he said, read that case, Dansky. I wasn't wrong. And it was a decision that he'd written in Colorado about self-defense. And it was right. He was right. In Colorado, you can find self-defense as a matter of law. And the multi-state was wrong on it, or at least a practice question. And without missing a beat, Dave Dansky looks at me and goes, isn't Mike Morrissey your father? And I said, yeah, he's my dad. And he said, he defended this case. And so Moore wrote it. Wow. My dad defended it and, you know, successfully argued that this man up on West Colfax had killed this guy in self-defense as a matter of law. So it was Judge Moore was just great to have around. He was he was always doing things like that. But that's a great story you tell about your grandpa, Craig. No, that's a great story you just told him. My old man grew up just in the 1400 block of Quitman talking about West Colfax. It's, it's amazing how far we go back and the connections we have. You've got a great company called United Data Connect, which is about your expertise in DNA. Mitch Morrissey has been featured on 60 Minutes, he goes around the country, around the world, lecturing how DNA fits into criminal prosecution. But here on my podcast, Mitch, will you acknowledge that 
Yes, Craig, your humble host, you did the first DNA case in Colorado. And I did. And I learned how to say deoxyribonucleic acid. And the jury thought I understood it as well as Mitch Morrissey. Well, you also had a very good co-counsel who studied up and he was, you went on to be your partner who, you know, David, David, David yes, for about did a lot years. of hard work on yes. that. You had the first case. I'm, I'm not sure when that Lindsay case comes in, but I've never taken, I've never tried to claim I had the first case in Denver. You had the first case. You know, Groves was pretty early Involving on. Quinn Worthen, right. the Capitol Hill right. rapist. And it was a Denver case, but it got moved to Pitkin County, Aspen, for the most enjoyable month of my life. Wow, what a lot of fun we had up uh -huh. there. And we got to convict the Capitol Hill rapist of his seventh rape up in Aspen. That, that was really a great experience. But you've gone on to be the king of DNA. How did that happen? Well, it was that fishback case, which ended up in front of the Colorado Supreme Court. And it's where they, they decided that DNA was admissible in court for purposes of identification. Of course, the technology changed and we spent a decade litigating the admissibility of the new the new systems. And really the good thing is that systems have become commonplace and haven't changed a lot. And so once we won those battles, that kind of stopped. But you know as well as I do, Craig, when you're going to cross-examine an expert in their field, you need to study, you need to understand what they're saying, especially if they're talking in a language you're not used to. And I was really not a scientific kind of student. So I mean, I learned the biology of DNA, I learned the genetics of DNA, and I learned the statistics that you have to present in court. And I did it, I really cut my teeth doing it, cross-examining experts that were brought in saying that it wasn't any good. And usually the problem was, is they were using it in their regular day-to-day -day jobs and were making a lot of money coming in and saying it was no good. So they were national guys, they would come in and you had to really be ready to cross them with papers, you know, peer-reviewed papers that were making the points you needed. And, you know, I had to read all that stuff. I had to learn from it. I had great help from Dr. LaBerge from the crime lab and a doctor who helped me early on on the Fishback case up at the medical school. I spent a lot of time in the library at the medical school reading up on it. And, you know, then Different people helped me from across the United States. A great friend of mine from the Oakland DA's office, Rock Harmon, he would send you a transcript of one of these experts and was back before faxes and all that. So I got one off on a Greyhound bus that he shipped me so he could get it here in a couple of days from California. So, you know, I just had all those cases. Right, that Rock Harmon, he was part of the OJ case, He was brought he? in to do the DNA with Woody Clark from San Diego. So you had a guy from Oakland and a guy from San Diego that were brought in, and they were only supposed to do the pretrial hearings. And then the LADA got nervous because his staff was not up to speed, and they had to stay and present the evidence in the case. But you need to talk to Rock about that. I mean, it was it's something that, you know, it's, it was not the greatest experience, I don't think, for him. No, it had to be terrible. And Barry Sheck, who used DNA to exonerate people through the Innocence Project, 
found a way by saying, what about that, Mr. Fung, to poke holes in the prosecution case, even though he knew better. I mean, the blood evidence, the forensic evidence, the hair, OJ left behind a lot of evidence, didn't he? He left behind mixtures. They found mixtures of all three people's blood. Remember, OJ cut himself. So his wife's blood mixed with Goldman's blood mixed with OJ's blood on the inside hand of the handle of the car door on the driver's side of the Bronco. Evidence like that that was never even presented in the trial. But how does Goldman's blood get inside OJ's Bronco? Maybe OJ beat his wife in the Bronco and you could explain a mixture of his blood and her blood. But how does Goldman's blood get in his Bronco? And it was on the inside of a door handle where you had to reach in and pull the handle open. That's the kind of evidence they had in that case. And a lot of it they weren't able to present because mixtures at the time were something that were complicated and hadn't been ruled to be admissible. And the OJ team, the defense team, was smart. They were, they ran that trial, they ran that as to trial as fast as they could. And they also got a change of venue, which I think both. Right. Well, the DA role. agreed to it. Yeah, he did. Garcetti yes. agreed. He, he thought the case was right. He, he was trying to avoid urban upset. And you just can't take a chance like that on a case of that kind. In fact, it's the current mayor's father who did that, right? Who did what? I think so. Oh, yeah. Garcetti. Uh, he was the DA. Yeah, Garcetti was yeah, the DA. Yeah, Garcetti. His son is now the, the mayor yeah, of he's Los the mayor Angeles. Of but he was the DA who made the fateful, terrible decision to change venue, and it became a racial issue. And really, that case should have been resolved on science. But there is justice Friday, August 21, 2020. Joseph James D'Angelo just got sentenced for. 53 separate crimes, something like 87 victims, 11 California counties. He acknowledged in court he committed 13 rapes and 13 murders. He's also known as the Golden State Killer. And wasn't that a function of DNA and science, Mitch Morrissey? It was the first genetic genealogy case, which is based on DNA and using the public databases that we use to solve the cases that we're solving currently in Colorado using the same technology. So, you know, you think it was two years ago, and it's the latest, and it's it's extremely good if you have the right amount of DNA and if it's not a mixture. It has its limitations, but that was the first case, and it really kind of springboarded the whole idea that you could do genetic genealogy and you could you could solve these cases you know, you could eliminate a whole lot of people and you could get down to the suspect, which, you know, in the Golden State Killer case, that guy was doing some stuff, Craig, that, you know, breaking in and killing couples, tying them up, making the husband watch while he sexually assaulted the victim. You know, I met the brother years ago of one of the one of his last victims down in Southern California. And, you know, he foot the bill for the entire campaign to get the arrestee statute, the arrestee law in California. Their legislature wouldn't pass DNA upon arrest on a felony. So he said, fine, I want my brother's killer caught. 
I will pay for this. And he wrote the check and funded the campaign. His name was Harrington. He was a he was a great guy. And I was able to meet with him a couple of times when we were pushing for that in Colorado. You did great work on that. And now you continue with your company, United Data Connect. Tell people when they should connect with your company, under what circumstances. Well, we primarily work with law enforcement and unfortunately just on cold cases. Obviously, this is a methodology that could be used on current cases, but we've solved cold cases in Colorado. We've got a number of successes. Last week, actually, the Douglas County Sheriff announced the identification of a Jane Doe that we identified. She had been found in a forest 27 years ago the Pike San Isabel National Forest down you know at Woodland Park in Deckers in Colorado. She was she was dead. She was unidentifiable. We identified her. We found her biological father and then went through some further investigation. The detectives were able to find her biological mother. She had been removed from the mother when she was three. The father had never laid eyes on her. It was a one night stand type thing. And then we found, you know, unfortunately, the family that really cared about her and raised her was her adopted family. And we were able to do that. We've solved rapes. We had an arrest in our Arvada. And of course, the man is innocent until proven guilty. But Mr. Bloomquist got arrested on a 2002 sexual assault of a 60-year-old woman. And then we solved a number of murders, you know, probably the one that your audience would know the best was again down in Douglas County, but, you know, we've solved a number of them. Helen Pazinski, the young woman that came here from the Massachusetts area in 1980. She was 21 years old. And Craig, this is one of those rising star victims. And I know you tried a lot of horrendous mm-hmm. murders and assaults. And this young woman was here for a couple of weeks, staying with her aunt and uncle. She took the RTD bus out to Inglewood of the last time she was seen. She was working downtown at a radio station. This rapist got a hold of her. He was on parole for for rape out of Arkansas. He was here on a parole transfer. He grabbed her at knife point, raped her, took her out in the field out in Highlands Ranch, which is now all developed, and he he just butchered her. He he stabbed her numerous times in the back and and killed her. We were able to solve that one. We solved another one about that same time, a young woman, her name was Jeannie Moore, and she had been hitchhiking. Again, another rapist got a hold of her. The guy was on bond for rape out of Westminster, but he was dead, unlike Mr. Clanton, who you know, we had the Douglas County, we pointed him out to the Douglas County investigators. They went down, followed him around in Florida, got some beer mug. Got, you know, he was drinking beer at a bar. They got his mug and, you know, they had his sample. The other ones where they've been dead, we've had to recreate their DNA profile through their children. Jeannie Moore, we were able to talk to the daughter of the person that killed her. He was dead. But we also solved the oldest criminal case, uh, 1963 murder of Peggy Beck up in a uh, Girl Scout camp, again, up near Deckers in Jefferson County. And I told the sheriff, I said, you know, sheriff, we just solved one where the guy was dead from 1980. You're chasing ghosts here, but we're more than happy to try to solve it. And we did. 
and they have not been able to find Mr. Taylor. His name is James Taylor. He'd be in his 80s, but his his own kids haven't seen him since the 70s, but we're able to recreate his profile through them. So we know it's him, and there's a warrant out for him. If I were looking for James Taylor, I'd try the Berkshires up <laughs> yeah. in Massachusetts or maybe down in North Carolina. Yeah, it's a common name. That's just what I would yeah. do. But no, so, you know, we've solved baby abandonment cases, rape cases, Jane Doe cases. But I got to tell you, this new business, some of the most interesting things that ever came across my desk have has just recently happened. And that is an individual contacted us. His name's Bill Lynn down in Colorado Springs. He runs a military kind of, uh, he has clients, war museums, and so he helps them build their collections and things. His great-great-uncle was a missionary in India from 1910 to 1948. He practiced medicine there and was a missionary. And so when World War II broke out, there were some remains that washed ashore on the Indian coast. And there weren't a lot of American ships that were sunk there. But one of the remains that, you know, unidentified had a American flag tattooed on the skin. And so he thought, well, you know, at some point this tattoo may be something that somebody's going to be able to identify this lost soldier, obvious or sailor, obviously an American sailor. So he removed the skin. And it's about a four inch by two inch slab of skin. It kind of looks like a piece of beef jerky. Actually, I have a picture of it with a tattoo on it. And they're asking us to see if we can get DNA out of it. And that's going to be the the difficult part. And then do genetic genealogy and try to save that, you know, try to identify who that sailor was and tell his family what happened to him, you know. It'd be a gold star family. and By accessing public files of DNA, relatives will lead to more relatives? By accessing the, the databases that people voluntarily put their DNA into. And I think for this kind of purpose, actually. You know, they want to find, if they're an adopted person, if they, you know, they want to find their real parents or they want to connect with people that they're related to. That's what GEDmatch, that's what... Family tree DNA, those are the two that let law enforcement use it. But this really isn't going to be a law enforcement case. So my hope is we'll be able to use Ancestry and 23andMe and much larger databases. And, you know, if you think about it, you look at the number of American ships that went down. There were only about six during World War II. And probably of all those six, there was very few casualties except the USS Pecos where 130 sailors lost their lives. So we're talking about maybe a list of 150 people. And I think that that narrows it down. I think there's a really good chance. We're taking donations to do this. And I got one for $500 today. We've already raised $1,500. So if any of your listeners are interested in helping us identify this poor lost sailor, you know, we'd be more than happy to do it. You know, Mr. Lynn, who whose family has passed this down since Dr. Hugh Lynn took it off of that those remains. You know, he doesn't have the money to do it, so we're just trying to do it. And Can people connect with you through uniteddataconnect.com? Absolutely. Absolutely, Craig. 
That would be great. All right. What about solving another big DNA case that you worked on? People may not remember, but I sure do. When Alex Hunter had all sorts of conflicts, Roy Romer stepped in and appointed three special prosecutors to go in. And one of them was Mitch Morrissey. Is DNA ever possibly going to solve the Jean Benet case? It could. You know, obviously, the DNA that I was most concerned about when I was working that case was found in the panties mixed with her blood. It was an unidentified male profile. They hadn't really even tested one of the stains when I got involved until almost 18 months after the murder. Bill Ritter asked me to do it. I initially told him no. I had just come off of a death penalty case, John Morris, where another little girl had been murdered and sexually assaulted. And I had really kind of missed out on about two years of my kids growing up. You know, they were little kids about the same age, and I didn't really even see them awake for about two years. And I don't know if your audience understands the kind of time, but I know you do. Uh, You dedicate to a case like that, a death penalty case. You know, Frank Rodriguez, I remember how hard you worked on that because I was covering you in courtroom 13 a lot, but those are just life-changing cases. The blessing was I I didn't have a wife or children, and so I could be a workaholic at that point in my life. You were always a workaholic. Thank you. I I bet you still are, but that aside. But I do see my kids when they're awake. So I've got that going over you, Mr. Workaholic. Well, mine were little, so I didn't get to see them much when I was when they were awake because they were usually asleep when I left and they were asleep when I came home. They would see me occasionally on television when I started working the John Benet Ramsey case. But those two cases were really very similar. DNA played a huge role in us convicting John Morris and getting him charged almost immediately. A real difference was the race of the two girls and you know, I poor Denver family the only picture of her we could find was her ID to get into the Curtis Park swimming pool. There was no video of her, and she wasn't in any pageants or anything. But, you know, we worked on both those cases incredibly hard, tried to get the right answers and, you know, tried to make sure that there weren't any injustice. Nobody got charged that you couldn't prove the case. And the DNA played a significant role in the grand jury's decision, and I think Alex's decision not to indict, not to sign the true bill, but, you know. Right, but the grand jury decision, Charlie Brennan wrote saying that the grand jury wanted to indict. Do you buy that? They voted to indict. Well, they wanted to indict for child child abuse resulting in death, which is a unique statute. You know it well, where you don't have to be the killer. You just need to know that your child's at risk. and you you can be held accountable for the for the murder and you know it's one of those things where you see so many times where a baby gets killed and you know the two parents are there and they're pointing the finger at each other and you know it allows prosecutors to prove that you were aware that baby was at risk and that baby was crying and that baby was being beaten you did nothing and that allows you then to hold both people accountable and that was what the grand jury thought Right. That, but doesn't that mean the Boulder grand jury, after hearing all the evidence that you guys presented, concluded that the Ramseys were both in on it? They could not say 
which parent did specifically what, but doesn't their vote indicate that they thought both Ramseys were culpable? At a probable cause level, Greg, and you know as well as I do the difference between a probable cause level and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They're completely different standards. And in fact, the interview of the grand juror, the one that I remember the most, once Charlie broke this story, was he didn't believe it could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think a big part of that was this mystery DNA. I spent 18 months and long after that trying to figure out where this DNA came from. We ran the profiles of the last, I think, eight men that were autopsied on the same table she was autopsied on to try to see if there was some contamination from the procedures that were taking place at the coroner's office because there was some contamination of the fingernail clippers. It was clear. They were using the same fingernail clippers on everybody and they weren't cleaning them. So, you know, that was one of the things we looked at. We looked at Oh, I don't even know how many people, over well over 200 people, to try to see if we could run down and figure out, you know, where this DNA came from. There was a purchase of the same types of panties that were made, and they were tested, and they came back with DNA in them, and they'd never been worn. They were out straight out of the package. So it, it can drive you nuts if you're trying to chase mystery DNA. It's very hard. And to a degree, genetic genealogy has a part of that in there where, you know, you're kind of waiting for that match to come through. We have a very serious rape case now that we're working with a local department and, you know, there's just nothing, nothing, nothing. And then boom, two days ago, I get a call. We've got a pretty significant match to somebody, probably a second cousin. So, you know, it's kind of a waiting game, and that case is in the waiting game mode. Jean Benet. You know, until you can answer that, that DNA question, I don't think you can prosecute anybody. You know, you can't have... Right, it's fascinating. Let me, let me just flesh this out for the audience because you're triggering all sorts of memories for me because I was a former prosecutor. I ran for Denver DA. Unlike Mitch Morrissey, I wasn't a Democrat. It's good to be a Democrat and an incumbent in Denver. But I ran as an independent against a very formidable guy, Bill Ritter, who I went to law school with and I'm good friends with him again. Mitch and Bill are tight. How accomplished is Bill Ritter? But I lost in November of 96 in that DA's race. And in December of 96, this little girl, Jean Benet Ramsey, was killed. And people came to me for my analysis because I was so fresh out of prosecution and I wasn't constricted in what I could say. And during the grand jury proceedings, I was on a lot of national shows, local shows, and I was saying there's probable cause. And if that's the standard for the grand jury, I bet they're going to vote to indict. And darned if they didn't do it. We didn't know it at the time, but Mike Kane, who was working with Mitch Morrissey, I think he got irritated at me. Maybe you did too, Mitch, because I got some correspondence telling me to stop talking about this or I was violating my role as an attorney. Do you remember all that? And what comes to mind when I bring that up? You know, Craig, I went up there on the agreement that I never had to do anything with the media, with 
you know, I didn't have any role in any of that. And, you know, I wasn't going. Mike King talked me into it. Bill Ritter, I told no. Uh, I said, I just got off this case. I can't do this to my family again. I told him no. And then Kane came to my front door and asked me. And he was, you know, my first chief deputy. And he's just one of the great guys. And I've always respected Michael. And he asked me. But the one thing I was told to do was the DNA. I did a little bit more than that. But I was told to go sort out the DNA. And really, at the time, it wasn't a mess. I mean, because they hadn't tested it. And they, I mean, they hadn't tested the, the blood stain right. that ended up having the profile in it. There was one that had a small profile, but there was, all, there was enough profile to put into CODIS. And so it's CODIS is the national DNA database. We got that profile developed by the Denver Police Crime Lab because that's who I trusted. And they did a great job. Dr. Greg LaBerge did the work. And he got a profile that was enough markers to put it into CODIS. And it was running in CODIS and has been running in CODIS for almost 20 years. And it has never matched anybody in that database. The problem with using genetic genealogy on that is it's a mixture. So when you go to sequence it, you're going to get both person's types in the sequence and it's a very, very small amount of DNA. And for genetic genealogy to do sequencing, you need a lot more DNA than what you're used to in the criminal system. So where you could test maybe eight skin cells and get a profile and, you know, solve your murder or exonerate an innocent person, you can't do that with sequencing. You've got to have a pretty good amount of DNA. We're working a double homicide right now where we have highly degraded DNA. We had to get the entire genome of that person done. We got a profile. We're working the case. I think we're going to solve it. It's a big case. I can't really say much more about that. But well, That's all right. Let's stay on Chambonet because okay. a lot of this is crystallizing in my head. And I've had a chance... To visit with Mike Kane, I got invited to be with him at an event, and he was very friendly, and we talked about it. And it was Mike Kane who left for Pennsylvania who allowed me to be on that Denver death penalty case against Frank Rodriguez. So we all go way back, and there really aren't any hard feelings. Things work out the way they do, but would it be fair to say that the Ramseys were well on their way to being indicted, and Alex Hunter or Mike Kane and you would have signed the indictment, but for the DNA, they would have been indicted. The grand jury wanted to do indict them under the statute that we've talked about. Alex Hunter and I advised Alex Hunter, Mike Kane advised him, Bruce Levin, who's gone on and died, had cancer. And we sat there. We were brought in to run this grand jury. We were brought in to advise them. And, you know, it was in that that area between proof beyond a reasonable doubt and probable cause. And, you know, I was brought up and I know you were under, you know, if you don't have a reasonable likelihood of conviction beyond a reasonable doubt, you don't bring the charges. And, you know, that's where Alex had to make a decision. He was stuck there. 
And even grand jurors who've been interviewed said, I don't believe you could have proved it to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. We just understood our role. We understood probable cause, and that's what we found. But there's a big difference there, and you're absolutely right. There was one of the advisors on it, all these elected DAs, that said, well, you know, you've got all these arrows pointing one way, and there's this arrow pointing the other way. I would go ahead and indict him. And I looked at him and said, you know, you're, you're calling DNA an arrow? I mean, this is a javelin through the heart of anybody that tries to prosecute this case at this stage. It ends it. And I, for one, was brought up under Norm Early and Bill Ritter, and I don't bring charges or prosecute cases that I don't believe there's a reasonable likelihood of conviction, and there's not one here. And that was the end of my discussion on it. And, you know, I think Alex made the right decision based on the state of the evidence at the time. This is valuable information about Jean Benet and Mitch Morrissey is nobody's shrinking violet. And I expect the sentiments you just discussed on this broadcast, it's almost verbatim what you told Alex Hunter. Am I right? Well, you know, like I said, I was there to be open and honest with the people that wanted me giving them advice. I, you know, I met with the governor, Bill Owens, later. I mean, we sat down for a two solid days and briefed him on what we had and what we did and what we saw. We couldn't talk to him about any specific testimony, obviously, because that would have violated grand jury rules. And he got it. He understood where we were. He didn't appoint Ken Salazar and Don Quick to continue the investigation. He felt we did a, a good, thorough job, but he understood where we were, you know, the one thing I like about Governor Owens was he's kind of a he was kind of a forensic science. You know, he he definitely was one of those guys that that liked those shows, CSI, all of that. Right. He was yeah, you know, he I hit it off with him. I didn't know him at all, but we started talking about the DNA and you know, it, it, he just he got it, he understood it. He eventually interviewed Carlos Samore, who's now on our Supreme Court. He was my DNA guy after I got elected. And, you know, Owen says, you do more, you do Morrissey's DNA projects. Why do you want this district court job? You got the coolest job in the state of Colorado. And, you know, I agreed with him. He did. Carlos had to, that was the best assignment a prosecutor could have. But that's the way, that's the nature of DNA. But you've got to go with what it says. And if it says you got the wrong guy, you get the wrong guy out. And if it says you don't have enough to charge, you don't have enough to charge. I mean, I believe in it. I've trusted it for 30 years. And I've trusted it to catch guys that have murdered people from 1963. And you have to go with what it says. And if it says you've got the wrong guy in prison, you got to get him out, Craig. And you know that. I mean, it's great evidence. Right. Sure. And, you know, I mean, so, uh, you know, you, you live or die with it and you give advice to people that don't really understand it, at least back then, and you try to do the best you can with it. And that's what we did. If that case will ever be solved, I can't tell you, Craig. <laughs> I, I didn't even know we were going to talk about this, but it's perfect. And I really appreciate it because Marty Coniglio is my other guest and he's a scientist 
And he got upset with Donald Trump over COVID. And he was just driven by this science because science does not lie. You know, political science, we can debate issues, but DNA, it's a hard science. You better trust the results. Am I right? Yeah. And that's why when you see it in court, it's hardly ever challenged. What what does happen is that the defense concedes the DNA does show like identification, and then the defense becomes consent. So, you know, it, you weave around the science to try to defend somebody on this type of thing, but they've given up going, going into the, you know, trying to take this science on. That's been, you know, it's been decades since they've given that up. So, yeah, and it cuts both ways. I mean, man, as a prosecutor, you know, if it comes back and says you don't have a case, that's the best part of being a prosecutor is you just get to sign that dismissal and say, we can't prove it. In fact, we've got the wrong guy, you know, and you continue to look for the real guy, the bad guy. And DNA helps you do that. And if it comes back positive, doesn't it make things too easy? It's not even a challenge being a prosecutor on a case like that anymore. Well, if it's ID, if the defense is ID, it's not a challenge. You know, that was the thing about testing all rape kits. Well, there's a lot of rape kits where both people are saying you're going to find, you know, the product. What you're going to find there is the product of consensual sex. And so you test that rape kit. Or do you not test it? And, you know, I think a lot of departments back when that was politically, oh, you know, they have a thousand rape kits that are untested. Well, they were all consent cases. And it didn't matter what the DNA showed because the guy was admitting that mm -hmm. he was, you're going to find his fluids there. And so was it, is it something that, you know, then DNA was basically just supported what both people were claiming that there was a sex act. So, you know, that, that was things that the police were criticized for not doing, but now Colorado tests all rape kits. It doesn't matter if it's consent or not. And, you know, uh, when I was advising the Denver crime lab, I said, take all those cases and send them to CBI, have them tested. They got the budget from the legislature. You don't have the budget. We were under budget crisis at the time, package it up, and send it to them. And that's what they did. And I think out of, you know, I don't even remember how many thousands of cases, we filed two. So, you know, I don't know if that was a good use of resources or not, but we filed two. And then I said, if we start to see that pattern again, where the woman is having consensual sex, passes out, somebody else came in, had sex with her, you know, let's, if that's the fact scenario, you guys tested here in Denver, but the bottom line is you had to fall back, CBI tested it. So it was really a dual thing. It was good. Dan Levitt from Sandler Sales. I've known you for many decades, Danny. You were such a successful salesperson. Why did you move on to Sandler to teach others how to do it? You know, Craig, throughout my career, I experienced a lot of salespeople, sales management, leadership. And it's unfortunate that there's so many salespeople that are below their goal. And what they're told is, you've got to close more business or we're going to find somebody else. 
And what happens is they, the, that management, they can't teach what the person's doing wrong, how to close more business. They just say, work harder. You got to work harder. Well, you know, I believe in a strong work ethic. I gained that early on in my life. However, if you don't have the tools to be successful, you can work 16 hours a day and not enjoy much success. So having a sales process that you can follow and get better at every time you're in front of a prospect, it takes away the mystery of why did that meeting go well and the other one didn't. You know exactly what's going on in your conversations and it's all about your prospect. And the fun thing is you're driving the process as a salesperson. You're discovering, is this even important to them? My friend, Dan Lovett, one of the great salespeople ever, he can teach you how to do sales. It's Sandler Training at 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell them Craig sent you. I am super proud to be an attorney at Springer and Steinberg. I am surrounded by great attorneys and we handle so many various aspects of the law. Give me a call at 303-861-2800 and let us know if we can help you resolve a court dispute, a personal dispute. Lawyers are problem solvers. In the criminal courts, you need a defense. In the civil courts, maybe you're bringing a case, maybe you are defending. Give me a call, 303-861-2800. I bet I can find the right lawyer for you. Maybe it's me or maybe it's one of my colleagues. We also do family law. The number to call, 303-861-2800. The law firm Springer & Steinberg. Since the early 80s, this has been the most effective law firm in Colorado. Civil, criminal, family law, business disputes, personal injury. Give us a call if you have a legal issue, 303-861-2800. Online at springersteinberg.com. Now back to The Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. This has been a great discussion of the past, Jean Benet DNA. Now I want to move on to the future and what's going on right now, Mitch Morrissey. There's a bit of a crime wave. It's linked to racial dissension and the George Floyd murder and the pandemic. Do you sense that crime is heating up? And what do you make of it? What's going on? Well, I think we got a little reprieve from the, because everybody is staying home. You know, there was, to some degree, I think just your normal crime that you were seeing, home burglaries, those kinds of things I would expect were going down. But things like looting and that type of thing, arsons, people setting things on fire in the middle of cities. And I know Denver was lucky to not have, you know, police precincts that were burnt and those kinds of things. But some of those are extremely serious crimes. And I think that you've seen an increase in that. The criminal mischief, the looting, you know, Chicago just had a huge run on looting down in one of their main shopping mall type areas. So, yeah, I think that you'll see an, you've seen an increase of those kinds of crimes. But 
I would imagine with everybody sitting at home, maybe you have seen an increase in domestic violence and that type. A lot of the reaction has been to George Floyd. When you saw that, what did you think, Mitch? Well, I think I had the same reaction that everybody did, but with a caveat, and that is that you've got to remember the video tells part of the story. I saw a lot of inflammatory videos, and then we would break them down frame by frame, and they didn't always show. And I'm not saying that in the Floyd case it doesn't, but you know, there's a lot of other factors that you have to take into account when you make a decision to file or not file a case, certainly a murder case, and you want to make sure you're doing the right thing. So, yeah, I mean, a very, very horrible thing to watch. You got ripped because during your three terms, they said you were not tough enough on the police. In light of what's gone on now, and even look at this California Golden State killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, he had been a cop. Is any of this criticism valid or do you reject it? Or is it something that we discussed before? Hey, Craig, you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, yeah. And also, I think you'd have to talk to the Denver police officers that are either on parole or in prison for the crimes we did prosecute them for, like sexual assault, you know, stealing money from we we, we prosecuted a lot of cops. Did we prosecute cops that were defending themselves, defending others, trying to prevent themselves from being killed. No, we didn't because the law did not allow it and wasn't going to file charges for political reasons where that I couldn't prove. So, you know, if an officer was about to be run over by a car and was able to catapult himself up over the front of it and his fellow partner shot and killed the driver, You know, there's laws about that in Colorado. There's self-defense as a matter of law, like we talked. So defense of others, you know, when somebody is pointing a gun at you, you don't have a lot of time to decide what you need to do. And, you know, officers are trained to, to end that kind of danger. So, you know, I did get criticized and I think it goes with the job. I had protesters out in front of my house for, you know, once a month, probably an entire summer writing profanity all over the how, all over the, in chalk, you know, making, you know, I mean, protesting in my neighborhood, you're just making the neighbors mad. There aren't anybody. You could be out on spear and get a whole lot more attention if you wanted to do it publicly. But, you know, I faced that, you know, the same kinds of folks that are protesting in front of the current DA's house or, you know, that I had that happening to me. The police had a camera out in front of my house. When they did break the law, the police didn't come when I called them. I was the elected DA. You know, they were projecting things into the windows of my house at night. It's clearly a violation of the harassment statute. I called the police the one time and they didn't come. (laughs) City attorney was advising them not to come. So they didn't identify the people. They didn't get, you know, they didn't seize the equipment as evidence and just... We're using the camera to avoid any kind of personal, I guess, chance of... Wow, I don't know that I've ever heard you talk about it before. I knew that they had done some protests at Beth McCann, your successor's house, but I did not realize it started at the Morrissey house. That's sort of a modern construction. I don't remember these things happening to Bill Ritter or Norm Early. Am I right? Is this a new phenomenon? Well, you know, I don't know if it's a new phenomenon. It's the same groups 
that are currently, you know, down there spray painting the Capitol and, and doing those things. At least they called themselves the same. Antifa and Black Lives Matters. I mean, that those were the groups. And they were out in front of my house, like I say, at least for a summer, probably six times. It really only violated the... I had a, I had a gate out front. Had they not had that gate, I think that they could have come to my front door. But they understood the law. They were very well lawyered. They were getting advice from mm. from lawyers on what to do and not to do and use chalk, not paint. But when they started projecting things from a camera and a laptop, you know, that that is a violation of the law. And I called and no one came. So, you know, I knew how to... The one thing I did know is when you deal with the Denver Police Department, you know how to go up the chain of command. And I ended up talking to the deputy chief, Mr. Qu- uh, the te- you know, Chief Quinones at the time. And he said, Mitch, I agree with you 100%, but the city attorney won't let us come. And I said, well, put the city attorney on the phone because I prosecute the state laws. And he prosecutes city ordinances. So I don't think he even knows what he's talking about. And it turned out he admitted he didn't know what he was talking about to me, but he, you know, the folks were gone by then. Well, that's fascinating. It's also very interesting to me that nobody's running against Beth McCann as she seeks re-election. She's a shoo-in now that the Democrat primary is over. Did you find that interesting or was that expected? Is the job as desirable as it once was? Well, I, I, you know, Craig, I loved every day that I did that job. I mean, I used to tell people, listen, I've been here for 30 years, and I got to experience some of the best trial lawyers in the history of this state. You know, guys like you. I got to try cases with Bill Ritter. You know, Bill Buckley probably prosecuted more homicides than anybody in the history of the state of Colorado. My good friend Dave Dansky, Nate Chambers, great lawyers. I mean, it was Bonnie Benedetti. I mean, just phenomenal people. A lot of people, I tried a case a year when I was the elected DA. I just loved that job and that office, and it meant a lot to me, and I'd still be there if I could have run again. You know, at a certain point, you have to make a decision how long you can do that. I had a lot of people ask me to run again when I was eligible to run again, but you know, personal things. You mean right now you could have run in the year 2020. Right. And, you know, my wife's brother died. My mother-in-law died about a month later, you know, and it it just, it wasn't, it wasn't the thing to do. And, you know, you kind of have to put those things behind you and move on to new things. And I think this company, I think we're doing really good public service. We don't make a lot of money. That's why when I said your callers could help us identify these Navy remains, it's not, it's because we just don't have a lot of money to do things for free. But, you know, I think we're doing a good job and it, I find it very interesting. And, you know, it's not like trying a murder case or sexual, a rape case, but it's good work. And I, you know, I'm really lucky that I'm able to do it. Well, there's always 2024. I'm sorry for all the losses in your family and your beautiful wife, Maggie. Another coincidence amongst us is that your wife, Maggie, knew my wife, Trish, back in the day growing up near the foothills. 
So the Cannon family is an amazing family, along with the Morrisseys. Oh, it, it's closer than that, Craig. Your brother-in-law was my brother-in-law who passed away. They were doubles partners in high school tennis at Bear Creek High School. Wow. They were a doubles team for four years, and they were good. They were a good team. It was your brother-in-law and my brother-in-law. And they were, you know, my brother-in-law died of brain cancer early this year, right about the time COVID first hit. He didn't die from COVID, but, you know, he'd been fighting brain cancer. But your brother-in-law, was the last time I saw him, was at the funeral. Wow, that's, that's amazing. And you and I played so many sports together. What stands out in your memory? Well, you know, I was like playing tennis, but I'll tell you that some of those lawyer league football games were... I remember being in the huddle one time and you'd thrown about two or three great passes to people that couldn't catch a cold. And you were getting a little upset. And I looked at you and I said, Craig, just throw me the ball. And I think that we completed, we went down the field with you throwing me. I was centering the ball. So, you know, you were throwing me rather, rather shorter passes. Man, you were a great, you were the great football player because as soon as you got hit by somebody, you were wound up. And you were like a machine. <laughs> Whatever we needed you to do, you were going to do it. I, I love that about you. What a competitor in sports. Well, you hit me on a pass, though, when Henry Cooper was covering me. And I think it was a, the long, probably one of the longest passes ever completed in the, one of those games. And somebody got a picture of it just as I was catching it. And Henry is right behind me. I don't know how I ever got behind Henry Cooper the way I run. A good but, pump um, Yeah. You 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 dropped that ball right in there, and we scored, and I think that was the same drive where you were getting frustrated. Oh, I'd love to see that picture someday. What great memories. And Mitch Morrissey, who I've known forever, but we rarely have talked politics. But this is the week of the Democrat National Convention. First of all, you were DA in Denver when we had the DNC. How cool was that? Well, it was a lot of stress. You know, I, I got a call from Harris. You, you got a call from Kamala Harris? Yeah, she called me, and she was the DA of San Francisco at the time. She was coming to Denver, and so it was a professional call. And she said, well, what do you, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to, meet with you. What, what kind of things are you going to be going to? And I said, well, I'm not going to be going to anything. I'm on call 24 hours a day the whole time it's here. We are expecting, you know, anarchists. We are expecting a lot of arrests and I've just got to be available. So I'm not going to be able to, to do anything. And of course, you know, Sean May got killed while that was going on. And that was a horrible tragedy that you know, basically is still unsolved. He was a prosecutor up in Adams County, was killed up in North Denver while that while that convention was going on. So it didn't turn out to be as bad as we had planned or considered it may be. But, you know, that's when you get in trouble, when you don't plan, when you don't know what you're going to do. You're not ready. I was on call. Bonnie Benedetti was on call. We had you know, at least three or four people ready to advise the police. You know, we had the big march from the stock show all the way down to the convention. So, you know, there were things going on, but I talked to her. It was very nice of her to call me and 
you know, I, I just wished her well, hoped she had a good time in Denver and that she stayed safe. And that was the last time I spoke with her. You could have hung out with the next vice president of the United States. Do you think she will be? I assume you're going to be voting for the Democrats. Are you a committed Democrat? Do you ever vote for a Republican? Well, I voted for Republicans. I mean, you know, when when you're in the prosecution business, it's not about politics so much. I never saw it that way, you know, and I, you know, I, I always thought that these offices, if the person was, you know, I didn't get a vote for anybody that wasn't a DA because I lived in Denver. I mean, but I mean, I get along well with George Brockler. Jefferson County has had some great district attorneys that I believe were Republicans. And really, that all goes out the window when you're talking about the job that we had to do. So, you know, when you say, did you ever vote for a Republican or support a Republican? Yeah, you know, there were, depending on what they were doing, where we were going, you know, on the national level, I knew a lot of prosecutors and really never knew what party they were from. So, you know, it was kind of like I was in politics. But I was in politics in a very narrow field. And I never ran for mayor. I never ran for anything else. I was never really wanted to be the DA. I always wanted to be a trial lawyer. Bill Ritter got term limited. And it was really my time to have to step up and take that role. And I did. And, you know, I spent my time. I used to always tell people I never had an outdate here until I got elected DA. You know, and probably could have still been down there trying cases had I just kept my head down. Not anymore because COVID would have stopped you. Anyway. Well, they're back trying cases, I think. Judge Martinez has come up with a way. Yeah. Yeah. But some of those cases got to be tried, Craig. You know, know, speedy trial and things that need to be dealt with. You know, I didn't ever personally meet Harris, but... I did personally meet Biden a couple of times. Obviously, I went in 1987. I remember him, you know, giving a speech in a hotel. I stood about, I don't know, from here to, I would say, 10 feet away from him, listened to him talk. His hair was dark, so was mine, you know. But I met with him a couple of times, uh, along with Mayor Hancock. We met trying to get him to come to Colorado to help help us with our effort to get the Rose Annum Domestic Violence Center built. It was the anniversary of the Crime Against Women's Act, and we met with him out of DIA. He was with his wife, who is a very nice lady. We sat and talked for a while, and he agreed to come back. And so then we had a group at Safe House Denver, and he came and spent the afternoon with us. And it was people from all our different partners in the Rosandum Center. Of course, Michael Hancock was there and, you know, the Safe House Denver folks were there. Uh, Rosandum was there. So, you know, he is a very likable guy. He he talks a lot. He talks a lot. Did he seem familiar? I mean, you come from a great political family. Wasn't your grandfather appointed by FDR? And Yeah, my grandfather ran against Stapleton to be mayor. Wow. When he stepped down from being the U.S. attorney, he stepped down to run for mayor. Stapleton was the mayor and had said he wasn't going to run again. Quig Newton was running. And so my grandfather thought he was running against Quig Newton. And it turned out Stapleton wasn't good to his word and ran. There were three major 
candidates, and my grandfather beat Stapleton but lost to Quig Newton, and, you know, the young guy took over and was the mayor of Denver. So, yeah, I, my grand, my father was in the legislature uh, early in his career. As a Democrat. Uh, he served a, a Denver Democrat. As a right. Democrat. Sure. Yeah. I've had people ask me to become a Republican and run for things, and it's like, oh, I don't know. My grandfather wouldn't be happy with me if that were the case. But yeah, you are you are not your run of the mill Democrat. That's for sure. I always suspected that, you know, you might have trouble within the Democrat Party getting all sides with you. But you had no trouble in Denver. How did you manage that? Denver's a pretty progressive community. Well, you may not remember the election, Craig. I went to the convention and came in third. So I wasn't real popular with the Democrats. I came in third, but I got on the ballot. But I had to petition once, you know, I didn't get eliminated at the convention. I got enough votes that I could then petition on. But I lost to Beth McCann and John Walsh. He came in second. She came in first. But at the time, I was ahead probably on the streets by eight points because that's how hard we were working. And I ended up winning by 12 in a three-way race. I won every district in the Democratic primary, basically west of Broadway, probably a little bit further east than that, but all the way to the Sheridan from north to south. I won every single precinct. But we walked the precinct. West of Broadway. See, that's your, that's your wife's influence right there. Well, and uh, just a whole lot of great volunteers that walked, got petitions signed. We had a system. If somebody signed, we wrote them a letter. If somebody was hesitant, we just said, well, you know, it's just to get on the ballot. Don't you think that you should have more options? And they would sign. I had a couple of times was on the front doors and people said, you know, well, what's the difference between you and Miss McCann? I said, I'm here at your door to answer any questions that you have. Have you seen her? You know, that's how hard we worked. We would work at night. We'd go to the gay bars and, you know, meet people there. We knew those folks were going to vote and they were important. There was a couple of important issues in that election that they were, we knew they were going to have to vote and, you know, I'd walk in on a first-name basis with half the people in the room because I'd been in the room. Never saw my opponents doing that. So we had a unique strategy. It was grassroots, and we worked hard. But when you say that, you know, I was able to just build this coalition of Democrats, I didn't rely on the Democratic Party. In fact, if you consider it, they rejected me. You know, I had Paul Sandoval, Paula Sandoval, I had some great Democrats that knew my family, knew my father. There were some people that knew Maggie and her family. Maggie was a great campaigner, but it wasn't easy. I was the outsider. Wow, it sounds like you're gearing up for 2024, or maybe you're going to run for governor this upcoming, what is it, 2022. Any further political aspirations, Mitch? Craig, I've never had any. Like I said, a lot of people have asked me, somebody, a reporter called me out of the blue and said, I hear you're running for DA. And I said, well, I ran a poll because people ask me every day. What did the poll show? It was dead heat, you know. Wow, that would have been a great race. Didn't have all these sick, sick people in my family. And, you know, my wife 
distracted. And, but but you would have you would have had to have won a Democrat primary, right? Right. Or were you going to run as an independent? Because I can tell you that is not necessarily a great idea. That's very hard. In fact, I had people advising me to do that, and I said, "Now you know I'm a Democrat." You got to live and die with the Democratic primary. And that's how it, we did in 2004. And that's what I would have done had I run. But, you know, like I say, it just wasn't right. I, I couldn't do that to my wife when her mom was ailing and her brother had brain cancer. It's just too overwhelming for you can't do it unless your family is 100% behind you and willing to you go to public appearances and do all the things you have to do when you run for office. It is not an easy thing to do. It's exhausting. You know that, Craig. I mean, I remember you on the campaign trail. You were relentless, but that wears you out, you know, and it just was not the right time. Not the, it wasn't the right time. It does. It's like being in a trial, right? Let me just ask you about downtown Denver, where you and I have worked. I'm back in the government part of downtown again, 1600 Broadway, Springer and Steinberg. It's a great location, or so I thought, until the rioting and the windows are all boarded up. What's happening downtown? Do you get downtown much, and are you worried about the places where you worked? I saw some windows at the Web Building was boarded up. That's where the DA's office is. and it even really pissed me off to see some windows at the city and county building destroyed. What's going on? And is this something that's going to harm Denver for a long time to come? Well, Craig, I drove by the Rosandum Center, which was something that we worked on for for years. It was a dream that we tried to have for one stop place for victims of domestic violence, be them, be them men, be they women, you know, a place where children could feel safe. And when I saw all the windows broken out of the front door, all the windows around the front, just the senselessness of that, I think you can hear in my voice kind of how I felt about it. You know, and that that is right down there on Fox Street between 14th, 13th and 14th. Maybe, what is it, two blocks from police headquarters? Two blocks and one block from the criminal courthouse. It's a half a block from the criminal courthouse. You'd know the old building that's was where they used to film the, you know, it belonged to the city for a long time and then Denver Public Schools. Oh, I know it. It's amazing. Your wife, Maggie, gave me a tour of this incredible center that she and you and a lot of great people built. Joe Biden was involved. And it's just, you know, it's like one of those stabs in the heart when you see something that, you know, makes such a difference in the community the senselessness of going by there and pitching a bunch of bricks through the windows, you know, that, and it just was senseless. And to see that part of downtown where you, we spent every day for what decades and decades walking around, feeling safe, you know, things had to change a little bit. The new courthouse had to become a whole lot more secure than the old one was. They had to start warning people that at a certain point in time you had to get off the grounds of those courthouses, that kind of thing. But, you know, just to see the senseless destruction of you know, a Union soldier statue, I mean, what is that? I mean, the senselessness of that. This is somebody, it was honoring the people that, a lot of people gave their lives 
to end slavery in this country and you tear down that monument and you spray, you know, you spray paint it. I just, you know, it, it I hate to see that stuff. I, I hate to see what they did to the Capitol, breaking out all those buildings, the crime lab that we, you know, we worked so hard to get Denver a state-of-the-art crime lab because they had all these great people working there, right there on the corner of Cherokee and 13th, a beautiful building, all boarded up. You know, and to see that, to understand what those buildings, what happens in those buildings, and the good work that's done there, to see them just trashed, <laughs> you know, it's just it was extremely frustrating for me. Because that's always been a part of town. I, you know, I used to love to work, walk from the Webb building to the Capitol, not so much to testify at the legislature, because that was not the best part of my job necessarily, but just that walk, you know, the historic nature, the Pioneer Fountain, all of those things. And, you know, to see the different monuments in the different parks on the way up there. And just, you know, then to drive by and, and see what was happening recently, it's just really depressing for somebody like you, me, who grew up in this town. This town means a lot, too. And that area, town in particular, you know, I went to law school right down there, too. So, you know, I didn't go to see you with you and Ritter. I went to DU. Right. No, you went to DU Law School when it was right across from the city and county building. Right. 13th and Bannock. Yeah. So I spent a lot of years down there. And, you know, the good thing is most of the years are positive. Most of the thoughts about that area, you know, I I'll never forget watching Justice Doyle walk across that park when I was taking a break in law school and he's going over to teach class at DU and I was throwing a Frisbee and he said, Hey, you know, you're pretty good at that. Why don't you toss it to me? And he stopped, he caught it, he threw it back, you know, those kind of experiences you never forget, but now that park has changed and, you know, the things that go on down there. Oh my God, have you seen, have you seen the Ralph Carr building and what they did to our state Supreme Court and Court of Appeals building? The Ralph Carr Justice Center, especially given that it's named after Ralph Carr. Yeah, well, and built during the Obama administration, you know, with shovel-ready project that God bless his soul, Steve Farber worked so hard to get built and make sure that the federal money helped, you know, helped Colorado get that new courthouse. I mean, that new Supreme Court building, it was so needed. I mean, I remember doing work in the old Supreme Court building, going and doing research there. And, you know, I was in a moot court there where Judge Plank and another group of judges, you know, a regional moot court competition in that building. And it was a nice building, but it was time to get a new building. And you just hate to see things like that trash because they mean something. They mean something to your community. And it's not bad. If you were still the DA and the file landed on your desk, hey, this guy threw a brick through the Rose Andam Center. This other guy threw a brick through the State Judicial Building, the Ralph Carr Justice Center. And this other dude threw a brick through the Capitol. What what sort of penalties would you as a prosecutor be looking for? Would that be jail or something less? Well, we had some of that going on. You know, they 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 dumped all that paint on the police memorial while I was the DA. And they started some fires downtown. They burned up some of those pallets 
started a fire there. We prosecuted those individuals, and it just depended on the crime and their criminal history. You know, a prosecutor treats each case, you know, there's no just ready answer. Your defense attorney comes to you and say, hey, this is a 20-year-old guy, got caught up, you know, he has no history, he's you know, then I mean, you listen to that kind of thing, mm-hmm. or this is a hardcore, you know, anarchist who, you know, has a history of doing this all over the country. You know, he's one of these farmed in a guy. Two of, two of the guys that we prosecuted for defacing the police memorial, they weren't even from Colorado. You know, they'd rolled in here just to do that. So, you know, it just depends on the individual. It depends on what the situation was. Obviously, it depends on how much the damage was because that's how serious the crime is based on, you know, the monetary value. So, you know, I can't give you a, I can't give you a one-line answer on that, Craig. Well, let's end this visit to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. You've been so generous with your time talking about one individual, and that's Donald J. Trump, President of the United States. What is your assessment of Donald Trump? Well, I think last time you asked that question, I think it was before he got elected, you asked me that and I said, Well, you know, he'd make a great windsock at a at a airport. You could always tell which way the wind was blowing. I was wrong about that. I don't think his hair ever lifts off like I thought it would. You know, Donald Trump is a hard guy to like based on what he says, based on what a lot of and he's just kind of one of in their face kind of guy all the time. And, you know, I know he's very popular with lots of people. I know he has these huge rallies, at least he did before COVID. But, you know, he's a hard guy to to like. And I think he loves it. You know, I think he's one of those guys. What's the old saying that never wrestle with a pig? The pig gets you get muddy and the pig loves it. Right. I mean, he likes to cause the kind of turmoil that he causes. He likes to take on the media. He likes to say the media is throwing out, you know, falsehoods about him. That's his deal. I mean, and it's always been his deal. I think he believes the old saying that, it, you know, doesn't matter if it's good press or bad press, they always remember your name. Uh, he's taken it to a whole new level. Uh, and I think that probably has to do with his reality show background. But but what about, I, I think it's deeper than that. I heard you read his niece, Mary Trump's book. I think he's a damaged human being. And I see characteristics similar to predators. In fact, Kamala Harris said, I know a predator when I see one. And what disturbs me much more is he, and I'm wondering if it bothers you, are his extrajudicial comments when trials are going on. For example, the Manafort trial and calling people rats or snitches. I've never seen anything like it. I think he's a threat to the rule of law. Well, now, now Craig, wait a minute. Wait a minute, though. You know, you remember what it, when, when everybody would come out on these police shootings and say, oh, you know, this poor guy and, and all of that. It turned out that one, the, the officers got acquitted. And, you know, I hadn't seen presidents doing that, but Obama would do that, you know, especially if it was a young African-American that was killed and, you know, there were riots and things. So, you know, Trump, Trump does that. And, you know, Trump 
is an American and he has a right to express his opinions. I think that this whole Twitter thing that he does is just over the top, but he's not the first president to weigh in on things prematurely and I think have a very negative impact on the community that they're weighing in on and be it Baltimore, be it, you know, there were, there were some very serious things where um, Eric Holder would weigh in and it's just like, guys, you don't do that. You wait, you know, let the, let the system figure out what happened before you're out there. And, but I think that's just the nature of the media that, you know, they're demanding a response. And if you don't respond, then they criticize you for that. So, you know, this is a trend that's been going on before Trump. Trump just has taken it to a new level because he's this Twitter master who, you know, has to fill the time. And I don't know if the man ever sleeps, but, you know, this constant Twittering thing that he does. I, you know, I, I don't know. If, I, I don't know if he ever works. I mean, he's not just taking it to a new level. It's a new stratosphere. This week you said if he doesn't win the election, then it's rigged. It's not on the level. And he also threatened to send federal troops, U.S. attorneys, attorney generals to polling places. Jenna Griswold has spoken up. She was my guest last week. Doesn't that bother you, Mitch Morrissey, that it doesn't just mess with jury trials? He messes with elections? Well, does he, though? You know, I mean, the guy is a blowback. <laughs> you know, he's filling his Twitter time. Does he ever actually do the things that he says? Does he not come back with a Twitter the next day saying the opposite? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, the guy controls the media by this constant Twitter stuff. And, you know, he's throwing fresh meat out to his the people that support him when he says, I'm going to put in federal troops. And, you know, and how much of that? Does he actually do? No, you make a good point. I doubt that he'll actually send the troops. But the people who like that crap, like QAnon and white supremacists, I've never seen a politician really reach out to those elements. Maybe I was missing something. I, I would just ask you, Mitch Morrissey. Well, but Craig, he's also reaching out to those people that aren't talking, aren't speaking up, but are scared about what they're seeing happen in the cities. They're, he's reaching out to them. It's like, do you want this in Douglas County? Do you want this in Arapahoe County? Look what's going on in Denver. Look what they're doing to the Capitol. You know, it's that same, he's playing off that fear. He's playing off of the, you know, the looting and the burning and those kinds of things. And you know, I think he's pretty effective about it. And there's a lot of people out there that are scared about this stuff. I had somebody at this dinner ask me the other day in front of all these people, because everybody was having a discussion. It was some kind of a thing my wife took me to where she's, you know, it's an investment club. And they were all talking about should they be investing or getting out of stocks. And I thought, I'm out of this one. I don't know anything about this stuff. And somebody says, Mitch, what keeps you up at night? And, you know, I think they wanted some philosophical answer. And I said, well, I have two dogs. One of them makes these noises like he's going to throw up. And the other, 
you know, he's not all that well house trained and that's what keeps me up at night. And, you know, I think they wanted this big kind of gloom and doom thing out of me. And, you know, I was just honest with them. Otherwise, I'd probably be getting a pretty good night's sleep. Yeah, there's a lot of horrible things out there that you can be worried about. And this guy plays on them. And he he leads the press around by their nose, I think, an awful lot. He's a master at that. But you have to see, you know, what is he actually doing and what's the impact. And, you know, this dis- divisiveness is very dangerous. I agree on that. My final question, are you going to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Well, that's kind of a private thing there. That's fine. You can take a pass. You know, like I said, I've been a Joe Biden fan. I went and saw him when I was a young prosecutor, 1987. I've met the man. You know, the the sad thing is I think they are very, they are projecting him as if he's lost a step. You know, he's such a vibrant guy. When we met with him, like I say, he never stopped talking. And I think anybody that talks that much is going to have, going to make mistakes and gas and that kind of thing. But, you know, they're really trying to pitch him as kind of senile and, and, you know, and I saw that with my dad. I saw him go downhill and, you know, I just hope that they're wrong about that because, you know, Joe Biden was a big part of the United States and the Crimes Against Women's Act. You know, he was able to get George Bush and he and get that law through and they were able to get millions of dollars. Denver got a lot of those dollars to do DNA and to get our database up and to help us fight violent crimes against women and children. And, you know, he, he doesn't get much credit for that. And maybe that's not what his party's about anymore. Right from you, you won't even publicly back him. Are you concerned that people on the left control him too much or what is the problem? Well, I haven't really seen much about, you know, about what he had, what he's standing for. You know, it's concerning to me, you know. He is standing for decency as opposed to Donald Trump, who he labeled indecent. And I'm inclined to agree. The things that Donald Trump says and does are indecent. Well, yeah, and I've 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 certainly made the point that Donald Trump is a repugnant human being to me. There is no question about that. But when you get elected to a public office, you can't get elected based on you don't like the guy that's there now. You have to be able to govern. You have to have you know, you have to have solutions and things that I'm not hearing necessarily from the Joe Biden camp. So, you know, this this repugnance of of Donald Trump is just to me an extension of why he's president. You know, here you had two people running in 2016 that no one could stand. And it was like people held their nose and voted. And, you know, it was like but I got to tell you, I, I felt a whole lot more about knowing what Hillary Clinton was going to be like as president than I do Joe Biden. So it's a tough dilemma. But when your politics come down to holding your nose and voting for the who you think is the worst person, I don't know if that necessarily sets you up for four years of good governance. Well, Mitch, it's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your accessibility 
I know you've got a lot more to do in your life, and I can't wait to see what happens next for you. Well, if you know anybody listening wants to help us, tell a family that a sailor that lost his life defending this country during World War II, you know, and I, I lost a, a great, um, you know, my father's cousin. He died in Pearl Harbor. If somebody wants to help us do that, go to our website. Can you know, we'll take donations of any size, and we'd sure like to get that work done. There's a family out there, and maybe it's two or three generations past, but to be able to tell that family what happened to that sailor in the Indian Ocean, that would mean a lot to us. So, Craig, thanks for having me on. I always appreciate the discussions with you, and you know when I make the decision who I'm going to vote for, I'm going to do that with as much information as I can get. And, you know, you're actually one of my sources, so I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate that. Now I have somebody to work on, Mitch Morrissey, his website, unitedataconnect.com. Mitch, keep up the great work. Thanks again. Thanks, Greg. We learned a lot about two good men, Marty Coniglio, Mitch Morrissey. Both of them have different reactions to what's going on in the world. This coming week, we will watch the Republican National Convention, and I can't imagine they will do as well as the Dems did. Joe Biden really stepped up and gave one of his better speeches. Kamala Harris did well. The Obamas, Michelle and Barack. Who do the Republicans have to match that? Former Republican presidents won't even show up. Of course, that means George W. Bush. What is going on with the Republican Party? We will talk about that next week. But special thanks to my troubadour. He is the best. He helps me come up with themes. Here we're talking about light of the morning and how we could have anticipated that Joe Biden would talk about light versus darkness. I'm not sure. That's lucky. But we have a lot of luck, and luck is important in this world. I call it mazel. When you hear mazel top, that means good luck. I wish you good luck in the coming week. And I thank my sponsors and my audience. Really appreciate you. Join us next Saturday for the next edition of The Craig Silverman Show. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show. Craig Silverman.